0: I think I got a perfect score since uh, the one that I got wrong, I knowingly got wrong. That's how those things work. So that's,
1: that's not how it works. And you did not get a perfect score. <laughs> What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I'm your host Will Algren here with other host Martine Grossman. Um, now, let's get out of the way right off the bat. I do have a terrible thumb injury, so I'm hoping I can last the full 90 minutes. But you know, I haven't tested it out yet. We'll see how it goes. I might have to get brought off at some point. Uh, but Martin, how are you doing? I'm alright, man. What'd you do to your thumb? Um, hard to say. I don't know. Just just started hurting. Uh, couple hours ago and i I didn't really do anything so maybe it's a maybe it's a maybe it's like a mental thing but who knows
0: (laughs) psychosomatic i um today we had a nice example of uh sergio busquets doing a nice phantom injury that uh of which he's pretty infamous in terms of the meme culture on the internet um his little lying on the ground and peeking through his fingers at the ref image that I think has been emblazoned across the rooms of many Real Madrid fans across the world. But um, today he did a nice little thing where he got, he had a little collision of sorts, went down, rolled around, bounced around, you know, like there's a way in which players these days will roll with their knees tucked in towards their chest and will periodically kind of like extend their legs and oscillate, which makes them kind of like bounce off the floor, you know what I'm saying? And basically what happens is he he, he does his little spring boingy boing thing on the ground and um, literally gets up <laughs> three seconds later after he sees that the play is going on and it's like the 90th minute. And, you know, if there was no foul called and Kiev scored, um, we'd be in big trouble. So that's certainly doing the round. So I think maybe, uh, you know, you're taking after. The phantom injury
1: culture that we're seeing a lot these days where no, I'm well, people... I'm actually injured Martin. I'm in a lot of pain and I don't appreciate whatever you're insinuating here, but uh, that's all right. Let's uh, let's move on. Talk about something other than Sergio Busquets. I've already spent far too much of my day uh, thinking about that man. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you won't mention him again, but I, I have a feeling you're probably going to at some point. Aren't you? Why
0: is that? What do you mean too much time? You watched the game yeah. today?
1: I, I did. I, there are a lot of great champions league games on today. Uh, you know, another Manchester United Atlanta thriller, uh, Bayern and Juventus both responded from some, you know, maybe shaky recent performances by putting in a lot of goals and, you know, exciting high scoring matches. But, uh, on Martin's advice, I ignored all of those and instead watched Barcelona try to break down Dynamo Kiev uh, incredibly unsuccessfully at a boy for 69 minutes. And then I had to leave to go to work mere seconds before the goal was scored. And I'm, I'm just, you know, didn't have a great day watching soccer, I
0: guess. <laughs> Did I tell you about my experience with the New England revolution here in Boston? I, I don't think so, no. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, speaking of you leaving right before the goal was scored, um, I, I was really excited because I got tickets to a Revolution game. They were playing the Chicago Fire, you know, so I had a hometown connection to this match. Very sentimental for me. Mm. Um, and the stadium, I, I live in, you know, closer to Boston, the city, and the stadium is in Foxborough, which is pretty, uh, it's I mean, it's a decent drive south. And... <laughs> So I'm going down there and the traffic is like um, just absolutely horrific. Um, So many cars. I think it took me 15 minutes to go one mile at one stretch and just people having no idea where to go. And I was very worried that I was going to be late for the game because I paid 80 bucks to be like center and in the front so that I could watch Bruce Arena, who I already got some flack from some friends for having any remote interest in watching because of the uh, sting of the Trinidad game and things that people kind of, are still frustrated about with him, but I just wanted to see him. Cause I figured, I, I mean, this is football that's in town. I might as well go observe. So yeah, I, as I'm driving, um, again, I'm like terrified that I'm going to be late because I left with plenty of time, but it's just like all the time got sucked up. Cause I tried to go into a certain parking lot. And then the guy that was standing in front of the parking lot said I couldn't go there. So I was like, okay. So I drove around, did a loop 10 minutes later. I, read gps it come back and the gps takes me to the same exact parking lot it was just like weird moronic things like that where i was like i don't even know what's happening and so at some point i finally get to a parking space there's like seven minutes before kickoff so i sprint across this massive parking whatever like conglomerate this bunch of movie theaters and stuff like that and i get to the front and it takes forever to get in And by the time i get in you know i go i take my seat it's frenetic but it's like 15 minutes in right but the the challenge but the problem is that right when I got to the parking lot, right when I pulled into my spot, um, I got a little light in my car that said to check my engine oil. And if you know anything about my car these days, um, any sort of light like that is is no good news for me. So I get into the stadium and I go sit down. It's the 15th minute. Nothing is happening, really. But, you know, later than I would have liked since I've missed a, good, you know, a stretch of the game. So I sit and... I just start to think I'm like, you know what, maybe this is uh, you know, that light is kind of actually a problem. I don't know. That's kind of making me nervous. I'm pretty far from home. As so I start kind of like on my phone, like kind of while watching the game, trying to research like, okay, you know, this car I've had has been having some issues recently. I've had to take it to the shop. It's been, you know, it's broken down on the side of the road two times in the last month. I'm like, okay, maybe this probably isn't the best thing since I'm far. And, So I'm looking and I'm basically missing the entire game. So, you know, it's 25th minute, 35th minute. It starts to rain now. So it's raining. I'm at this game I paid money for. I was late to it. And I'm on my phone, which is just criminal. And so at some point I get to the half and I call one of my friends who owned this car, a version of this car before me. And I'm like, yo, man, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, this probably is an innocuous thing, but I'm just so nervous these days with this vehicle. I don't know what to do. And we're talking back and forth and he's a car guy. So he was telling me like, you know, oh, like all you have to do is open up the hood and do this and figure, you know, check this and go buy this from an auto zone. He's like across the country on the phone, helping me find like a car store, like a auto parts store that's open after the match. They're all going to close. It's this whole thing. And I'm sitting here at halftime and I'm like, okay, this is really upsetting. I can't even just like relax and enjoy the game. At some point I arrive at the verdict that I'm going to leave because there was like, the game was going to end at nine. All the places in the area were closed already, but there was one that was open until nine. So I'm like, I'm not getting out of here. It's going to be terrible traffic. I'm gonna be stuck in the parking lot for 45 minutes trying to get out. And so I'm like, okay, whatever. I guess I just have to cut my losses, you know, sunk cost fallacy. I can't, you know, if I stay here and watch this game and then I can't go home, it's freezing out. It's terrible. It's a terrible evening. So I, you know, pack my bags and I'm leaving, and as I'm leaving the stadium, right, it's 0-0. As I'm leaving the stadium, the half starts, 47th minute, I hear, like, the entire stadium go nuts. Okay, so it's 1-0, so I missed a goal. This is where this ties into what you were talking about, Will. I missed the first goal, and I drive, I go to this auto shop place, whatever, I buy engine oil, I pop the hood, I check, you know, my levels, I go, I top it off, I'm doing all this stuff. Come to find out that the final score was 2-2, of this match in the second half for which once again I paid $80 to be up close and personal to watch something that hopefully was going to be fun uh in which it was cold and I got rained on I had t- I was on my phone for the entire first half and I missed all the action so all of this is to say um I don't know actually but that was just a, sh- a story that I wanted to share with you William
1: maybe you had to be there um Okay. Well, let's, let's move on to, I don't know. You have any other stuff you want to get out of the way in the intro, Martin? <laughs> no, maybe I, sh- maybe I shouldn't even ask him that. Um, <laughs> I'm taking the rinse here. We're moving on uh, to <laughs> another new segment. Uh, Weekend wound up received just glowing reviews. Uh, so we'll be bringing it back at a later date, but uh, thanks everyone. You know, we, we, we don't want to just wound it up all the time. Uh, so Instead, uh, in celebration of today's episode, and I guess mostly last week's episode, we're gonna be honoring one of our favorite managers here on Touchline Theory, uh, Ole, right. with a new segment called Ole Say, which uh, you know, this segment has four real Ole Gunnar Solskjaer quotes, four fake <laughs> ones, and a <laughs> contestant who thinks he's smart enough to know the difference. So Martin, <laughs> step right up and we'll, we'll get started. Uh, (laughs) All right. Hit me. Number one. So this, uh, this first one is allegedly, uh, from today and maybe the one that inspired this segment. Uh, Cristiano for us is like Michael Jordan for Chicago bulls.
0: So I'm supposed to guess if this is real or fake.
1: Yes. That's, that's the game. (laughs) Would you, would you like for, to...
0: for the Chicago Bulls or for Chicago Bulls? The no,
1: four for Chicago Bulls. It's real. Okay. Moving on. One point. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'll, I'll tell you at the end. Um, okay. 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 You seemed upset. So I kind of assumed. Is that right? Just give me the first one. I, I, I can't tell you. Okay. That's fine. You'll find out at the end. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to the other contestants who've played, Martin. They didn't get any preferential treatment, neither will you. That's right. That's right. Um, Okay. Next one. Number two. Uh, Ole here on uh, just the nature of football. It's it's not about tippy tappy, namby pamby football. It's a battle, (laughs) and we have to be ready for it.
0: So the question here is um, as I dissect this, are you creative enough to come up with namby pamby? I, I don't know if you are. And so I think. You know, Namby Pamby is a good one. That is, that's a evocative term that I think only somebody with uh, Ole's sophistication could probably conjure up. So I'm going to go with true on that too.
1: That's a real quote. That has to be real. Okay, you have uh, five seconds to answer. Moving forward. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, Ole on, you know, placing blame for a bad result. We lost to Arsenal a couple of weeks ago. Whose fault? The players, the manager, no. The traffic.
0: <laughs> that's good. That's you. That's you. That's your writing. I, okay. Yeah. I feel like that's uh, the Algren influence.
1: Okay. Um, all right. I don't, know, uh, I don't know if you've
0: stumped me quite yet. I feel confident
1: in my in my answer so far. Well, but... we'll, we'll see. Uh, okay. Manchester United are better in penalty shootouts than in games. <laughs> Harsh words if this is a real one. Oh no! Oh no! Um.
0: (sighs) Yeah, that's uh, that's false. He can't say that. There's no way he says that. Okay. So that's my final answer. All right.
1: Sure. Yeah. All right. uh, Moving on. This is Manchester United, and there is no I in Manchester. (laughs) <laughs> oh no oh man you
0: gave it away you gave it away with your wry smile there at the end um i would like for that to be a real quote but i also don't see ollie as like the uh motivational vince lombardi type who's going to go into a locker room and try to pull some spelling uh inspiration you know so i think that one's that one's false though i like it as a concept i think there is a i in united so he was you know, he would have been clever in picking Manchester first, making it all about the city and how the city is a, you know, a group of people, but yeah, eh, I don't think good. that was him.
1: All right. Um, Ole on, uh, you know, a uh, tactical focus for his team. We have to learn to stay one nil down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's false. I, I, I think that might be the inspiration for an episode um, okay. for us to do in the future, The this like notion that there could okay, be value. Your
1: five seconds are up. Um, I, hope <laughs> I hope Marcus had a lot of candy. I hope Marcus had a lot of candy. Oh, that's, no. That's Marcus Rashford for those who are wondering. Um, I hope Marcus had a lot of candy on the night of his birthday. So his energy levels go up. <laughs>
0: You know, I'm I'm rocking with this perfect score right now, so I'm gonna say that it's uh it's true just to break the streak a little bit. That's that's straight from Ollie's mouth. He has a you know a vicious vendetta against Marcus Rashford's efforts in the community, and his uh, qualms with okay. Let's focus five
1: seconds. Uh, next up, Ole. <laughs> Finally, this is our last one. Actually, mm. we've flown we've flown through this segment. It's very fast. Um, Are you Ole, keeping track? Ole on yes, of course. Um, Ole with a comment on you know maybe maybe some optimism for the future. We only lose once a month, and we have already <laughs> lost this month. So
0: so hey, that's actually like a that's an awesome press conference move. You know hey we've met our quota so it's not going to happen. That's false unfortunately. But I think I got a perfect score since uh, the one that I got wrong I knowingly got wrong. That's how those things work. So
1: that's, that's not how it works, and you did not get a perfect score. And <laughs> you got a four out of eight because all of them were real quotes. Are, are you? Gone. Are you serious? <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, Ole, and sorry <laughs> you, anyone who thought oh. I was coming up with these. I'm not. Oh. I'm not this creative. Um, You're joking? No, they're all real. Pretty good. Yeah. This you is, this...
0: so You sold me on. Wow,
1: yeah,
0: I'm impressed. I don't know. Well, actually, I don't know whether to be impressed or concerned. Do you want to run through them very quickly one last time, just to give a, our listeners? Uh, uh,
1: I'll I'll just I'll just do a couple of the best. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, these are true. These are 100% real. Folks. Uh, we lost to Arsenal a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Whose fault? <laughs> the players, the manager? No, the traffic. That's insane. Uh, that's a good one. The the inflection is mine. I I don't know if he said it quite that way.
0: Yeah, no, he's a little more sheepish when he speaks, but carry on.
1: What's your second favorite? Um, I do really like this is Manchester United. (laughs) There is no I in Manchester. That's insane. That's really nice. That's Um, so,
0: that's so, like I said, I mean, I, I don't take it back. Like it's very intelligent of him to choose Manchester.
1: Maybe not so intelligent to say Manchester United immediately before, um, Anyway. Well, you
0: know, I think it insinuates that there is a little distant uh, flavor of individualism. It's just next door, you know.
1: All right, your five seconds are up. Let's <laughs> All
0: right. We can we can carry on into our next segment. That was a lot of fun, Will. Thanks for um Oh, of course. Doing absolutely nothing to create anything there, but simply curating, which is still valuable. Oh. That's what I do.
1: Uh, um, I, I don't I don't really create anything, you know, it's just reading stuff off, honestly. Same as with the ads, right? Yeah, it's that, just pure authenticity at this point. We can't
0: get over it. I think today's episode, uh, you know, it's a great segue that you've chosen because last last week we uh, did part one, an emphatic, all caps, part one. Uh, the soul sire, oh my gosh. So, how do you say his name? I'll just try again. I, you'll get it, you'll get it. This is like, I, I've always heard people say his name. I have always read his name. With no problem. You know, I don't read and stutter. But when I try to say his name, I just like swallow my tongue.
1: Yeah.
0: Sol sh- Shire. People just kind of like skip over the K, right? We had this problem with Thomas Tuchel, right? You were saying it was Tuchel as if he was French, which was just an abomination and totally wrong. It's Thomas Tuchel. <laughs> that was what it was back in Paris. Yeah, you're
1: probably not right. Probably not yeah, wrong. Yeah. Fiancé. Uh... So
0: with, with all that being said, uh, Ollie, which is easier to say, was the focus of our last week's episode when we talked about uh, the question as to how can we escape a cycle of crippling mediocrity, which is, I think, probably an intimidating title for some people. Um,
1: Even when, for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in terms of just how that, what, impacted you uh, personally, how that spoke to your heart? Uh, it's, it's just a lot to read, man. I see that many words. I'm like, uh. <laughs> Just gloss over it. Do you mean like a different kind of intimidating? Maybe you did. Anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on. So the
0: the nice thing is that we we chose Ollie first because the you know the House of Cards had appeared to you know been knocked over a little bit before this whole Cohen thing. But that day that we recorded and we put out the podcast last week, I believe, or maybe a day or two after. Yeah, no, it was, was, it was
1: the day Wednesday. Yeah, was...
0: that's when uh, you know. Friend of the pod, Ronald Koeman, who's the former Barcelona manager, uh, was also sacked. Well, not also. It's a shame that it wasn't also, but maybe not, because Ole can give was us was this
1: con- this content. Ole um, well, also gave you some results this week. Just, just as I predicted. <laughs> just as we expected. <laughs> I did say. It's it's a, you know, seesaw has got to go down, then it goes up. It's,
0: a... he, he, it's yeah, the Man United script somehow this like seemingly unpredictable ethos where we have no idea what's going to happen is the only predictable thing about it. It's like, not we just know that
1: it's going to keep oscillating. And he's, he's staying till the end of the season. I don't think there's, there's no doubt in my mind at this point. <laughs> he will at least be there till the end of the season. I they mean, can't, they time- can't fire him this week now, even if they lose to city, you know, he's had a good week. How about those Ronaldo goals, man? It hurts me to say, but wow. Oh mm. my gosh. Yeah, the, might might be one to watch. He's pretty good.
0: It's interesting because he he I it's almost as if he's taken the manager's plight personally because he seems to be playing with he's always seemed to be the type of player that plays with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, but he these finishes that he's putting in the back of the net, these last two volleys, um, like first time hits. Just I mean, it's class. I I I don't like him. Um, everybody knows that, but I can't be just a you know, a total dead brain and not
1: admit that what he's done is sublime. Yeah, it's an insane goal. I mean at least not anymore. Um but yeah, great, great stuff. I mean see this is what I'm saying. I mean, that that first goal. United are just fun to watch when they get it right. Like I'll admit that, even if they don't seem to have much plan, they do have enough individual quality for these moments it's just like sheer brilliance. And we saw that, you know, the beautiful team passing move for the first one, nice little Bruno Fernandez back heel, and then that was nice. It was uh what Mason Greenwood like playing that nice little volleyed pass over to Ronaldo to you know match it with a volley of his own, finish it off. I hope Both we have s- no
0: Liverpool supporters listening to this, hearing a staunch. Uh, Merseyside is red kid,
1: just oh, like, raving oh, okay. about
0: Manchester United.
1: Martin, is... I'll, I'll tell you what, I kind of hope we don't have any Liverpool supporters listening to this either. Cause I, <laughs> I don't like them for the most part, but <laughs> you're just going to make yourself the enemy to everybody, but well, okay. not the United fans will love me. Um,
0: cause I'm a sellout, but uh, hold on. <laughs> back on track. So the, the idea in any case for this episode is that we saw a lot of similarities between the Komen situation and the, uh, Solskjaer situation. And I think that we might maybe take some time towards the end of the podcast to draw a couple of parallels and things of that nature and try to actually answer the question that we've posed. I think in the last one, we talked a lot about United, but we didn't really necessarily delve deep into what it means to actually escape a cycle like this, where your team is simply meeting a standard, but that standard is not the standard that you wish to set for yourself. Um, and you're just spending all your time, all your energy is going towards keeping your head bobbing above water, but you're not necessarily making any progress, but you're also not drowning at the same time. And so I think that we, we, I personally felt that, you know, Komen had an interesting sort of handful of parallels, but also some key distinctions in terms of his personality, the things he was brought in to do, um, you know. His ethos generally, his demeanor, these are all things that we'll discuss. But I I felt as though it was a similar situation where Barcelona has certainly, since the days of uh, Enrique, suffered by our own standards, right? A lot of the metrics and a lot of the performances regardless. I mean, the team, all things considered, does well enough, but is not doing remotely well enough for the people that really care about it. And so I think that... The The picture here is one in which we have, you know, two former club legends, uh, legends for having scored probably in particular just one very famous goal each um, brought in to take care of a club in the wake of some sort of managerial, you know, spiritual leader, you know, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit more about um, Sir Alex Ferguson, but certainly like Pep Guardiola I think they both somewhat embody the same sort of thing for Manchester United and for Barcelona. And there have been a handful of <sighs> unsuccessful managerial appointments since that time. And so these two are the most recent kind of uh, bacteria in the Petri dish that we are looking at under the microscope.
1: So, so to speak, so to speak, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you've done a great job setting the stage, Martin. Before we, you know, officially get into this episode, I I do want to just take a second to remind our viewers that this content is sponsored by Hooligan. Um, you know, me and Martin have already spent a lot of time talking about this app, both on and off the podcast. So we're gonna we're gonna cut it off for today. We're just gonna run an ad I recorded earlier, and uh, yeah, enjoy, guys. Gang is an app that will change the way you watch football. We've attempted to bring the match day experience to fans around the world by connecting you with fellow supporters of your favorite club in real time. Gang uses digital technology to match you up with other fans over video chat during the games you're watching, and supports both one-to-one calls and larger group meetups to help you customize your experience. Simply select your language and see who you meet on our randomized global servers or revisit past connections using our mates feature. Hooligan allows you to discuss tactics with armchair managers around the world, to enjoy a match with a new group of drinking buddies, to find a fellow fan that becomes a friend, or something more, all from the comfort of your own home. Stay tuned for our release early next month and get ready to find your Hooligan. But wait, there's more. Those seeking a more competitive experience can enter Dust Up, a ranked mode for our adult users that pits you up against fans of rival clubs in an attempt to replicate the emotion of two sets of passionate supporters clashing at a stadium. Gloat as your star striker scores or mock the other team's mistakes as you attempt to earn banter points and climb the leaderboards by forcing your opponent to leave the call as quickly as possible. Dust Up strives to create an inclusive environment for those who wish to put the hooligan and gang and our remote interface ensures there are no physical repercussions for our users giving even the weak and elderly an opportunity for verbal abuse they might be hesitant to take at a live match use the code touchline theory that's touchline theory in the app for a free xp boost to kickstart your journey to ultra level and a chance to win a trip to your favorite club stadium to put your skills to the real test experience all this and much more on hooligan coming soon for iOS android and the nintendo switch Wow, Hooligan sure does sound like a great app, doesn't it, Martin?
0: Definitely does. Check it out. Uh, we get monetarily benefited if you guys do. So uh, you know, feel free to support. But
1: that's not what it's our... about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> feel free to support our uh, our efforts here by checking out Hooligan, the app. Um, you can find Will on Dust Up mode. Uh, he has yeah. literally not stopped being on Up mode since he received the initial beta kind of uh, release. Uh, do you have any sort of anecdotes it's... that you'd like to share from from Up?
1: I mean, I'd, I'd like to let the people uh, experience it for themselves. But what I will say is uh, once you get going on Up, it's a hard switch to turn off. Um, I've said some very cruel things to some of my players in the last few days, and I, I can't help but think that yeah, this this might be having an influence on that. So uh <laughs> proceed with caution, but, but please proceed. It is a lot of fun. Um and the prizes, oh oh boy. Uh, they're they're just great. Um yeah. Have you you been dusting it up at all, Martin?
0: No, I mean the problem with dust up for me at the moment is like who am I gonna dust up about my disaster of a club situation? Like no one's I'm not dusting anybody. I'm yeah, just you going gotta... to get dusted.
1: Yeah. Pick and choose your moments for sure. That's a, uh, you know, part I just don't of the game. have leverage,
0: yeah. but speaking of, uh, you know, dust and things that are disintegrated and don't exist anymore. Komen. So one, one thing that I wanted to generally discuss is that my, my brain is pretty scattered on this one. So we're not going to spend any time kind of like talking about Komen's reign. Not going to talk about that much about, you know, his history right. or the years that he was with the club, the significant moments, the milestones. We're kind of just going to take a step back and talk about some bigger questions um, because that's really what I'm interested in is distilling, you know, what Komen embodied into something that we can look at analytically and try to figure out um, where he went wrong and what types of things uh, are actually, you know, his merits in a way. I know you and I both kind of agree that there are certain things that he actually does really well. Yes, uh, I think yeah. <laughs> there's been a lot of criticism of the guy over the course of time and he's a big target for that type of thing just because of who he is. I feel like it's typically hard to insult these like meek characters that are quieter and shyer and have like cute blue eyes that look like the, the actor from what is it? Like the Lord of the Rings. Do you know what I'm talking about? Ollie. There's this actor that has these cute little blue eyes. He's a small male actor.
1: Ugh, Elijah uh, Wood. Is that what I'm thinking of? Elijah Wood. Is that what I'm I thinking was, of? I was going to say that as a joke. I've never really thought about his eyes that much, I guess. Um, I think, I think Ollie looks like Elijah Wood. Um,
0: but it's hard to insult Elijah Wood. You know, like you can't just look hmm. the guy in the face when he's stumbling through the quotes that you mentioned in a press conference and and just be like, I hate you. But to Komen, who is so wonderfully, splendidly in public, (laughs) like you, the fan base generally has found a lot more comfort, I think, in disparaging him and making derogatory remarks because he's so much uh, (sighs) less painful of a target for that criticism and for you know all of that vitriol and and the insults people throw his way so with that um, I want to generally talk about a couple of different things Uh, I I really have no particular spot that I feel compelled that we need to start with but I suppose I'll ask you will um, one of the things that I've thought about a lot in the context of Komen and the way in which he's stumbled through his time with Barcelona is this conflict he's had with Ricky Pooge okay this is like a thing I mean Ricky Pooge is the main one because Ricky Pooge also kind of embodies the cute young La Masia guy, very sprightly player who seems like he could do no wrong and it was you know endeared himself to the fan base in a preseason and then played a couple matches kind of before Pedri came onto the scene and is you know he's a fountain of youth. he's a symbol of uh, exuberance. And, and Komen didn't oh, like him. How are his eyes? <laughs> Sparkly. Um, okay. um. Glimmering. So the, the, the question that I have for you, I suppose to get us kicked off here. Um, it seems as though a lot of times with managers, there tends to be, you go into any room as any person and you're going to like people and you're not going to like people, but with coaches in particular, when there's all these dynamics of authority and of, you know, guidelines and rules and instructions and leadership. Uh, you know, levels. There seems to be kind of this consistent thing where you, you will always kind of have some players that end up getting marginalized when any new manager comes into the fray. And yeah. with Coleman, he has a bit of a reputation in the past at Everton and at other places. Oh for, yes, he does. Like, yeah. Very, uh, I would almost say like grotesquely uh, pushing certain specific players to the fringes of the team Um, doing things like making them train with the youth team or like just
1: being, I don't know do you know the story about Umar Niasse? Umar Niasse was the example to give and uh, yeah, it's just um, stuff you usually don't really see from other managers, maybe a step beyond. I think Komen just like removed uh, his locker one day and just said (laughs) you're no longer wanted, go train with the children or something like that. And how do you Um, think that made him feel, Will? I'm gonna take a swing and say probably not that great, Martin. That's got to be hard as a player, um, and you know, it's that's maybe why most managers don't do stuff like that. I, I,
0: you can imagine that if your entire livelihood is hinges on this like identity that you've created for yourself as a footballer, and and a coach does something like that, yeah. I mean, it's gotta rock your, your perception of, of the universe. And the, the interesting thing about Ricky Pooge is that he's, like I said, he's pretty outspoken. Um, he seems pretty uh, cheerful on the outside, but there were all these rumors that came out about him and Komen not getting along or that, you know, besides things that people on the field could notice like his perhaps lack of defensive contribution in the midfield, which was important to us this year in particular or last year in particular, it seemed as though there were things kind of uh, happening under the surface. And so one of the questions that I have for you, um, I think this happened with Jose Mourinho, where he walked in the Tottenham dressing room and was just like, I am going to make fun of Serge Aurier. And he had his nice, you know, Tammy Abraham spout of performance for the first couple of games of the season. And now Roma seemed to be sliding a little bit in a way where he seems to be getting more and more unhinged and, there was this awful loss to Bodo Glimpt, I believe, six one, something like that. Yep. Where he took some of the players that played in that match and has banished them to the stands, which is most ironic because he was kicked out of a game, red carded, and sent to join them, effectively. Which no. I thought was a nice little, uh, nice little moment.
1: But yeah. the... I don't, I don't think he sat with them though.
0: <laughs> no, he stayed very far away yeah. from them. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is this seems to be a bit of a trend where like some coaches feel the need to. Stamp out one guy and to make a statement and to pick favorites, not necessarily because they're organic feelings that arise, but because like as a matter of principle, it's important to, you know, put your foot down. And I guess I'm just curious regarding your thoughts on this. You know, Ricky Pooch is a fan favorite who people online and all over the place are going to be clamoring to play and Kuman never put him on the field. And in circumstances that were pretty absurd, right? Like I have my personal thoughts on Coutinho and whether Coutinho should be getting minutes over Pooch. But he mm-hmm. would. there would be moments where like clear cut, Pooge would genuinely be perfect to go on the field or even, you know, poor team up a lot of goals, a lot of not starters starting. There's no reason why he wouldn't and he just would never play. So my question for you um, in the fact that this dilemma between, or this kind of conflict between Komen and Ricky Pooge, as much as he feels it may have served him well, but whatever benefits it may have brought him, I, I am a firm believer that in terms of the overall story of his time at Barcelona, this was actually a huge detriment to his public perception. This idea that he was picking on somebody and that that really said something about who he was at the helm. So I keep alluding to the question that I'm gonna ask my my what i want to ask to you is like can managers ever really win when they pick fights with players is that something that like actually has any survivability or is the type of thing where like as soon as you pick
1: a fight with a player you're kind of already losing what do you think i think it's very difficult for a manager to win if they pick a fight with a player i think you know there's there's going to be conflict between players and managers and there's going to be times where a manager is going to have to like make an example of someone or set their foot down but they, they can't, you know, be the one who instigates it, right? It has to be after the player has done something really bad. And especially with Komen, where he's a guy, you know, Umar Niasse, no, no one has ever said he did anything wrong in that situation. He has that reputation already, where something like this, uh, you know, this thing last year, Barcelona, is going to be put under the microscope a bit more than it is otherwise. So... I mean it's it's hard to win a fight with a player as a manager. I think it is possible. You know, there's times where maybe you know, you'll be able to get through to that player or even if you can't, you are able to make a strong enough example out of them where the other players will listen to what you have to say more after that. But, you know, when it when it's done in like this harsh a manner and you know, the player is this ostracized, it's it's very very difficult, especially you know, when it's, it's two guys that haven't seemed to have done a whole lot wrong. That's probably going to lead to other players thinking about, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe this might happen to me at some point too.
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's a weird form of preferential treatment that I think I've thought again, I've thought about a lot, but I'm not sure I see unless it's a a threatening presence, which may have been the case. You know, perhaps Pooj was the type of guy that was just overly um, enthusiastic in a way that he maybe contradicted the manager, or things like that, and he felt the need to squash
1: something that he saw that the rest of us didn't, which is, I think, the question that the fan base has asked
0: for but, a I long mean, time.
1: Who, who knows? I mean, we gotta remember, these guys spend hours and hours together every day in training when there are no cameras there, and we have no idea about what these relationships are actually really like behind the scenes. We just get these you know, bits and pieces. They get thrown to the press once in a while. Right, and I,
0: I think, let's just contemplate for a second your team. Right. A manager that's widely respected that has developed. we talked about this earlier today, a very a culture that's almost so good that it's a problem in a way. And maybe we can talk about that in a separate yeah. episode, yeah. but in the con for you, has Klopp ever like made an example out of anybody single out?
1: Mamadou Sako actually. Uh, Tell me I, more. Uh, so Sako went through this, this whole thing, uh, I think back in 20, 2015, maybe 2016 where he was uh, banned for the Europa League final because of uh, performance enhancers, which it was later discovered were not actually performance enhancers and were failed tests. So that was the whole thing. I think he might have had to miss the Euros because of that, too, actually. So okay. it, would been, it would have been 2016. I don't remember this at all, actually. So this is interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then um, Sako was, you know, maybe a, a guy who would, you know, do things like show up late to training every once in a while. And, there's, you know, I, I highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen this to go look it up if you're interested in Liverpool because this is like one of the most awkward videos I've ever seen in my life. Um, but in 2016, Liverpool came over to the United States for a preseason tour. I actually saw them on one of those games. Uh, their first match was in San Francisco, and Klopp decided to take all the players out on a field trip to Alcatraz, um, which I know th- this sounds... <laughs> This doesn't sound real. Which it is and, um, you know, the- fake, true or false uh, field trips with Jurgen Klopp, oh, no. jail. Uh, why? Why? The Al- first one. Um, <laughs> but the you know it, it does lead to the common commonly made joke, which I'll you know make a little bit later. Uh, but anyway, you know the, the Liverpool you know YouTube channel whatever decided oh, the players shouldn't just have all this fun to them themselves. It's, let's film <laughs> it and release it. And the player they chose to film it was a uh, Mamadou Sakho. And oh, apparently, like, right before this, Sako had, like, been, like, two hours late to the flight to the United States, and, like, made the whole team wait. And Klopp was, like, absolutely fuming at him. Hmm. And so it's just, like, the video is, like, Sako, like, walking around Alcatraz and, like, talking to all the players. And, like, every single time he talks to Klopp, like, Klopp is just, like, staring into the camera. Like, he wants to, like, absolutely <laughs> murder this man. Like, it's it's the most upset I've ever seen him. And then we sold him like like a week later. See, but the thing about that is that the
0: the conflict is so outward facing. You know, it's like there's yeah. no hidden hidden sort of drama going on, or at least, I mean, you at least see enough of it that it doesn't feel hidden.
1: Of course, but I, I mean, he did he did act very very quickly and just got him out of the club, though. I mean, that's that's a good way to deal with it, I guess. And
0: sometimes that's the commendable thing to do, frankly. You know, sometimes when these things drag on. This idea of dirty, dirty, what is it, dirty laundry or just like a stink in the dressing room, you know? Like at times when you have to really value as a coach, if you're going into a confrontation with a player that is going to result in some sort of lingering animosity, you have to always err on the side of this will be a bigger problem for me if it is a problem. It does not serve me well necessarily to dive into this head first for reasons that go beyond trying to get the team at a place that is the best that the team can be. Because I think it's such a pitfall for a lot of people generally, even socially, you know, a lot of people are confrontational people or enjoy the, the, you know, emotions of being at odds with other people. But the intriguing thing here is that it's just so public. And this is the type of thing that I think also, again, it turned people's approval ratings of Komen as a person, as this bully, right? Right. It, it turned them progressively and progressively further down. You know, when, when he's being mean to Pianich and Umtiti, the fan base loves it. But when he's being mean to the, you know, the, the golden child, this cute little boy, Ricky Pooch, yeah. they, they don't. And so I suppose th- where I want to take this too, is this idea, right. Of like this bad cop, somewhat short-term manager. Um, mm. it, it seems as though Komen's personality in a way, despite this, dynamic with uh, Ricky, it it seems to me like there was a bit of a situation in which he was sort of a punching bag that was perhaps necessary. Um, A guy that is comfortable taking the blows from criticism from the public, things of that nature. And it's almost as if the board's appointment of him was to put somebody who was a little bit more dominant, who was not going to take, um, the insults that other people were going to throw his way so kindly somebody that was maybe a little firmer, you know, again, this bad cop idea, then say Kike Setian who has seemed very, uh, you know, tactically proficient in an, you know, in a, in a vacuum, but not, you know, an outward facing character and neither was an Ernesto Valverde. So I think we have seen a little bit of that recently. Right. And I think, there's this idea that sometimes when you've had some years of mediocrity and you have gotten to the point where say the recruitment might not be ideal, right? We had like Malcolm that we brought in and he was about to go to Roma and then he just hopped in the plane and came to Barcelona and everybody was like, oh yeah, but wait, literally why did that happen? You know, like moments like that where you're just asking yourself, like, things are kind of weird. The performances aren't there. We're trying to kind of recover. We still have Neymar rumors of him coming back to the club. We're signing Griezmann. There's all these weird things going on that just are demonstrative of a club in transition, but a club that doesn't really know their way through it. And so what sometimes happens and what I've noticed, and what I think part of Koeman's role in all of this was, intended role, is that you hire a sacrificial lamb You you hire a a coach a manager that's going to somehow not be focused on actually getting results, but you hire a manager that's going to shake things up in a way that you will pave the road for the future results of somebody else. Have you seen something like that? Like what what are your thoughts on that idea that you you know you sign basically a a bomb you let it exterminator exactly. What do you
1: think? I, I think there's some value to that idea, although, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into this more later, but it's debatable whether, you know, Komen is really someone who's left Barcelona in a better situation than he found it. But uh, someone who did leave their club in a much better situation than they found it, Frank Lampard, who I think uh, right. may be a different personality, but played a pretty similar role as for Komen. I don't, I don't know if you know, our listeners remember, but back before Lampard... And Chelsea were like the club for like dressing room drama or whatever you want to call it. It felt like every single season there would be some story coming about about like how half the players just like hate the manager and like refuse to play for him, and all this stuff. And it was just it was constant year after year. It was kind of part of the culture. And then as soon as Frank Lampard joins, that completely stopped. And you know maybe you know it's 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 lazy like with Komen. It's having a you know former club legends big uh big intimidating presence is going to stop some of that and also you know maybe getting some of those bad players out like players like willian and david louise were often mentioned as kind of being at the center of those groups and you know lampard got rid of them immediately when he joined and you know, that stayed and you know lampard is you know was maybe given a bit more freedom in the transfer market than uh ronald kuman was probably largely because you know you know they were able to sell Hazard right as he was joining and gave him a pretty large budget to work with. But I mean, if you look at the state that Lampard left that Chelsea team in, because I mean Tuchel, oh my God, Thomas Tuchel is still playing with a uh, Frank Lampard's team. You know, plus plus Lukaku now, who's been good, but you know not. Game changing. He won the Champions League with with Frank Lampard's team. And maybe that's what it was. You know, I don't know. I don't think Chelsea won that Champions League under Lampard. In fact, I'm I'm pretty certain they don't, because Chelsea were, you know, carried in those last three games pretty much on the strength of uh Tuchel's tactical system. I, you know, I think if if you're talking about Champions League finals that were won more so by managers than the players, like, you know. Obviously, no finals won more by by a manager than the players. But that Chelsea win is probably pretty far along that spectrum,
0: right? Do you think Do you think Chelsea wins what they did last year without Frank in the
1: first half of the year? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't either. Cer- I don't think... Certainly not without Frank over the past year and a half. You know, we, we did. He he completely reshaped the team and uh, vital role, a hundred percent vital role,
0: and. Like I said, there's, you know, Frank Lampard was also the target of a lot of criticism in the media. This idea that, you know, a lot of players or a lot of fans impression of the player. It was sullied by their stinky performance as a manager, which I think is an entire other separate issue. Um, but this notion that, again, like, you know,
1: who were Chelsea's managers before Lampard came in? Um, I think Conte, I think was the one immediately before. was like. Mourinho, ex- sorry. Before sorry. Well. A couple of people
0: who had sufficient name to be a name, right? Realistically, Conte is a big name. Sorry is a big name. Probably, mm. I mean, these are bigger
1: than the ones that Barcelona had has had. Oh, but by, by far, that's not a very high competition, which we'll we'll talk about more later. <laughs> the The main idea, essentially, being
0: though that sometimes when you try to shoot for this kind of. Uh, nebulous is that even the right word like this obscured idea of what you actually want out of your manager what the actual genuine role of the coach that you're trying to hire is right a lot of times when you're talking about this highest level this upper echelon of clubs everybody just wants to win and also play free flowing attacking beautiful football they want to sell out the stadium they want to have iconic players they want the manager to be outspoken and you know in touch with the community they have all these criteria and Sometimes when you try to keep hiring these managers that are going to ostensibly fit all of them, you end up meeting sort of none. And I think that sometimes, and I think we're seeing more of this, uh, you do need to hire on occasion when things are just like consistently meh, where it's just like, "Eh, this is just a cycle of crippling mediocrity. We just can't get out of, you know, Mm -hmm. being a team that historically has won championships. We keep getting third, you know? For those clubs, sometimes it does take just this kind of axe swinging destroyer mode to to really get to the point where you can clear these trees that have been growing for so long and have planted their roots so firmly in the club because Mm -hmm. there are points at which. Teams and locker rooms get stale. There's even in, in the aftermath of immense success, there are times where you need to continue to evolve. You need to change. There these players that are super famous and idolized by many people, there are still times in which they might not be the presence in the locker room that you need. And like people will talk all you want, for instance, about Suarez leaving Twitletty, a massive competitor of ours, a competitor that shares a common enemy But nonetheless, a team that won the league last year and Suarez played phenomenally well for them.
1: Might win it this year.
0: And they talk about, right. And they talked about, like, you know, how stupid it was at Barcelona. And I thought about this plenty of times. We've actually discussed it here on the podcast. Like, yeah, it's a shame. First off, I don't think Suarez has that performance without getting insulted by Barcelona and going and trying to prove the world wrong because he's kind of vindictive in that way in, in a beneficial sense. But at the same time, I think Barcelona was better off in the long run without him. And it's not because they've found a replacement, right? I'm not saying, far as one of my favorite players of all time. Luke De Jong. Stop. But, <laughs> at, but the fact of the matter is, sometimes when you have guys in the locker room that are maybe, you know, they feel as though they are insulated. You know, they feel as though they don't have to necessarily put the same effort out there as the rest of the players that are trying to fight for this, you know, their, their starting position. They feel like their lineup is cemented or their status is in bold and will never be unbolded like at times it does take you know you kind of got it like you know teary-eyed grab the axe and just swing it and cut down a few trees and even if it hurts in the moment you get a little bit of money in you know Griezmann thing that happened a couple of weeks a couple of months ago right he's playing well for France these last few days he's played well for Atletico he's a great player but he never worked for us And was it a shame that we lost a lot of money? Are we sending him out on loan and we're not getting any money now? Yeah. Lots of problems. But when Griezmann left, it was like, you know what? This is best for him. And it's best for us because sometimes these, this just rotting wood in the, in the dressing room, it might have a label, a price tag of what it was once purchased for. That is still in the minds of many and millions of people. But at times You just need to set fire to the whole thing. You need to burn it to the ground and start over because you can't build a house in a densely packed forest full of trees that are so high that you can't even get sunlight. You can't grow anything. Sometimes, you know, as beautiful as the trees are, they need to
1: come down. And I think that that's part of Coleman's legacy. Realistically. It's a rush song. Um, anyway, there's, a, there's certainly a lot of room for growth at Barcelona now. I mean, I, I don't even know half of their players anymore. So there's, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for these younger guys to come into the team. I'm serious. I mean, compared to a few years ago when Barca's team was filled with big names, who are, who are the legitimately big names still on this team? Uh, there's, there's Pique, Ter Stegen, Jordi Alba, I guess, Busquets, Sure, De Jong, Memphis. Is that it?
0: Uh, <laughs> I think part of the reason why you are unfamiliar with a lot of the players in the team is also in a way a, a beneficial thing in in the sense that yeah. the academy has been given the chance to actually promote a generation of players that is really promising yeah. because if you look at the previous batch or two right of guys that came through the system juvenile uh the the B team, things like that, where they ascended, you know, meteorically realistically and ended up not being able to find a place in a team that was clogged up by these poor short-sighted signings. Look at a guy like Alenia, right. Who maybe wasn't good enough to be a starter for the team or even necessarily like a super involved bench player, okay. but he's a hit now. And he left and he was part of this kind of class where, what about Mark Kukuresha, who is a, Super good player, in my opinion, oh. has a bite to him. He is very. We talked about this in the podcast too. He's abrasive guy with a lot of technique and a you know the the I mean, the acumen to play within our system would have been an unbelievable kind of intermediate point between Jordi Alba and Alejandro Valde, who's like our guy that's coming through the academy right now at left back, yeah. who is probably way too green to really be like a starting left back for us. Mm. But Kukurisha would have been the perfect transition. You know, he's gone. Alex Grimaldo, another Mm -hmm. example, like of a guy that came to the system and went somebody somewhere else. And so that whole generation was lost in a sense. And the only survivor of that generation in a weird way, I guess Alinea is a little younger, is kind of Sergio Roberto in a weird sense. (laughs) Like he's on the older end of that, but that's the guy that's stuck around. And Mm. so part of this, right, is like you said, a lot of these names, like Nico Gonzalez, I'm sure you weren't familiar with, is tearing it up right now.
1: Oh, I mean, I've, I've, absolutely I've tearing heard it up. his name mentioned the past couple of weeks, but before that, no clue. Yeah, we've we've got multiple players every like half
0: season that are getting promoted to the A team. Um, we we've got two new guys that have come in now with Sergi Barjuan, who is like the interim manager for Barcelona, and we've already promoted two guys, I think Ez Abde, and there's another player that's come up as well, who all basically played in the youth academies with like guys like Ansu and Eric Garcia. And there's pictures of them that
1: from when they were kids
0: and there's value in that. And that's, there's a lot of, there's
1: a huge amount of value in that because you know what these kids are getting and what, what the kids at Chelsea got last year was an absurd amount of top level playing experience at a very young age and an important role. And you you saw how much that benefits players like you know Mason Mount, someone like that, you know Rhys James, these guys that came through the Chelsea academy, and maybe now this is going to be uh, the answer to that for Barcelona. Maybe now that all these big names, you know, you you lose Suarez, Griezmann, and Messi all in a year, and that that's just a world of opportunity that's opening up for all these young talents. And I think what what Barca are doing is you know it's a uh, I mean, this is not as common a thing in soccer, but like in basketball, you know, if a team is like past their prime, you're like, all right, these guys are old and not very good. We're not going to win anything with these players. You know what they do? They blow it up. That's the term. They they trade everyone. They start getting a bunch of young players and they start trying to lose every single game. (laughs) And obviously you can't really do that in soccer because the, you know, the threat of relegation prevents teams from like truly tanking. But you know you you get soccer from a different you get talent from a different place in soccer as well. You don't get it from a draft. You get it from your own youth academy. And Barca still have one of the very best youth academies in the world. So you know maybe this is a good thing for them right now where they say okay, look, we we weren't going to we clearly have not been the team that is going to be absolutely world class and do well in the Champions League for the past few seasons. they they're a team that's gotten embarrassed in the Champions League for the past few seasons. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying they've had like embarrassing showings for the entire campaign every time. But when they do lose, it has been very, very bad fashion. I mean, just think about in recent years, Liverpool, Roma, Bayern. all oh, I don't even need to think about, you about know. it. Yeah, you know. It's and bad. I mean,
0: Benfica most recently, which was something that like isn't in the same kind of scale,
1: but is also problematic. I mean, no. and I mean, if it ends up letting you not get out of the group stage, then it probably isn't the same scale.
0: It will be problematic. Mm. The... The component of this that I think is particularly fascinating, right, in this context of youth in particular. Coleman has gotten a lot of criticism over the last couple of years for going into press conferences and saying things along the lines of,
1: well, you
0: know, did you expect us to win? That's been that's been like sort of a general thing that he has pushed a little bit that people have been like, what are you talking about? It's one of the best clubs in the world. Their expectations are through the roof. How can you even go into a press conference and say that when you have these miraculous players at your disposal? But I'm going to kind of flip this on his head and argue that I actually really agree with him. And I think that yeah. th- one of the things, one of the detriments to football society right now, and it's something that I think we've seen a lot, and we talked about this with in part one with, with Ollie and with yeah. United, is that... You can't just be comfortable. Nobody is just comfortable with teams having a year in which they're good, two years in where they're good, then they spend some years in the doldrums, but not that far. Just reconsidering things, reshaping, reconsidering their identity, recruiting players in a way that's sensible, isn't necessarily geared towards you know, spending absurd yeah. amounts of money to get success in the year that you bring a player in but rather spending a little bit of money to bring in a a, a prospect developing them investing in them letting them grow yeah. over time making a more sustainable club system there's just like no time for that and and so yeah. what happens and i don't agree with that statement it's just what i think the public perception is okay the challenge the challenge is that it, in 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 having this incessant kind of Mentality where it's like we need to win everything. We, if, if you know, if we're losing to Real Madrid in the Classicos, yeah. it's an absolute disaster. Like, yeah, I don't like watching that, but at the same time, we are not in a position right now where we can beat Real Madrid in the Classicos. And if that yeah. means that we just keep pushing to try to do it and it's never going to happen, you just continue to cement yourself in this cycle of just being bang average, yeah. And I mean- you just need to be able to let go for a second to dip back down, to take the time to reshape and to go back. You know, you have to compose yourself, but there's like seemingly no time for composure. And I think the the beautiful thing about Koeman's reign, which again, people will look at with a certain amount of distaste, is that he gave so many young players opportunities at the cost of... You know, results, certainly, at the cost of a system that people didn't believe in or if there was even a system at all, certainly. But what can we say about the last couple of years with this Barcelona team besides the fact that there's been these cataclysmic moments? We can say that Pedri has rocketed to stardom. Gavi is coming through the ranks. Nico is coming through. Araujo is like one of the best young center backs in the world. Mingueza has pretty much solidified himself as a first-team option at this point, right? M- Mingueza mm. is a really good aggressive option for us off the bench or even in a you know the occasional starting 11. Demir has come in and hasn't gotten a chance, but he's at least a part of the per- first-team picture. Puj, we've already talked about it. Who knows what's going on there? But... There's this, I mean, Alejandro Valde is coming through the ranks. We have like Arnaud Tenaz, who's a guy who's like playing as the B team goalkeeper right now, who's better than Inaki Pena, but very promising young goalkeeper that could end up being our backup in a situation where we don't spend, say, 30 million on a guy like Neto to never play, you know, like these are, these are really important. Good thing. We have guys in the, in the yeah. lower divisions too, that are looking really promising. You have like, Jandro Oreshana is a guy that everybody believes should have been a part of the first team picture this year. And he's, you know, who knows what's going to happen. It might take the Cochado route where Alex Cochado, like was the best player in the third division of Spain last year. And for the last year or two, and then basically like, got brought up to the first team and like, isn't registered for anything. And we can't do anything with him until January. Like there are, there's weird situations, anomalies like that, but the fountain that we're seeing coming from below where we're getting this total generation. I mean, I forgot to even say on Sufati, like the players that are coming through. If you look at that, a lot of that, you know, he's not the one that's developing them, but he's the one that's giving them the critical opportunities. It comes down to Coleman. Yeah. Because if there's anything we can say positively about his time at Barcelona, it's that he had this comfort in saying, Yeah, I mean, this team does not have the medal to challenge for the, the top things. And as much as mm-hmm. that might upset fans, I mean, he was that, right. With that, yeah. exactly, he said, You know what? Given those circumstances, let me just invest. And I cannot be that upset with a guy who invested in a <laughs> opportunity that people in the past for the last five, 10 years have simply not invested in. Because if you remember 2015, 2015 was not 2010, right? 2010 was like the year of La Masia, where it was every single person came to the academy. It was yeah. Pedro, it was Puyol, it was, you know, Fabregas, Messi, like Xavi and Iniesta, all these. Was, uh, all these...
1: David, David Villa still on the team back then? He okay. was, but I think he
0: was a Valencia import. I actually don't remember, honestly. Oh, okay.
1: I was man. I think I mean, the same lines as those guys. Huh.
0: But a lot of these yeah. players, right? Like Victor Valdez, Like you had all these guys that all mm. came through. 2015 was very different. All things considered, right? It was Rakitic. It was Suarez. It was Neymar. It was Ter Stegen. Mm. None of these guys were necessarily, mm. you know, homegrown in the same way, but there was a system there with, with Enrique was a different, it was a different thing. The, the front, the trident was just utterly, you know, delectable with everything they did. But now, Koeman has done well, frankly, to realize and say, you know what? We don't have the talent to make the MSN thing work. So, Let's opt for something that's actually weirdly tying us back to our roots. It's not the, you know, crossing it into De Jong thing and and signing players to score headers and playing Piquet and Araujo up top at the last minute and doing the Hail Mary stuff that we've talked about. But in a weird way, it is nostalgic and beyond just the fact that he's a club legend. But because we're seeing the ethos the prodigious nature of la masia really come to life and that's something that at least for me is important
1: yeah and you you talked about a lot about investing there and i just want to talk about like the opportunity cost of trying to win games or trying to win every game as some fans think that barca should do Uh, winning a professional soccer game is really hard you know there's a lot of people on the other side working very very hard to make sure you don't win trying to win against a team like Real Madrid I mean that requires an incredible amount of effort and if you give up on that suddenly you have a lot of effort to put into other things maybe you know you're you're able to really focus on youth development on this sort of thing you know maybe if you're trying to win every game then Komen is just like all right because we are we are never playing Pedri, or maybe Pedri is a bad example, but he's too he's too good. But maybe we're we're never playing Gavi. We're gonna play Coutinho in every match because he's better right now. We're trying to win games, and you know which one of those leaves you better off long term? Because your league position, the previous year, amount of games you won the previous year, has no impact on how you're gonna do the next season. Not really. The actual players in your team getting the experience for that youth and you know, getting the experience not for Komen, but for other teams, you know, just not trying to win for a year, just trying to build a system, trying to work out, you know, what exactly your players are doing. That could work. And I I wanna, you know, call it back to Chelsea again, because you remember, Martin, there was a stretch of years in uh, you know, mid 2010s where Chelsea were finishing first and then tenth,
0: mm-hmm. and then first
1: and then thirteenth. And what they did is, you know, in these in-between years, they got a new manager every time, you know, and they, they just, you know, they had a bad start to the season with one manager, so they immediately just blew it up. They say, okay, we're not winning the title this year, so we don't care where we finish. We are going to get a new manager in, you know, have him implement a system, even if it doesn't work brilliantly at the start. You know, we'll then spend the transfer window fixing up whatever holes we discovered in the team, and this team is going to be absolutely ready to go and go murder the league again next season. And they did it every time. But some teams just, and most teams, do not know how to take a year off, or perhaps it isn't even an option for them. But I mean, legit, if you're thinking about it, you know, would you rather finish second twice in two seasons or finish 10th and first? I think almost everyone would rather finish 10th and first. But... It's hard to remember the promise of that first place season when you're in the middle of the 10th place one. And
0: I think also people probably won't admit that. I think people in the moment find more comfort with just like this consistent yeah. subpar level where you at least feel like you're competitive every year and you don't have to go an entire year of your life because being in, in, tenth, in misery.
1: Being in 10th is really really scary. <laughs> yeah. It's, but the thing is, right, in a fun. league like
0: like the EPL, what team can afford to genuinely pursue to win a title every year? I don't think there's a single team in the league. Manchester City. No, I don't think they even. I don't even think they can. Oh, because, come on, Martin. Because think about it, though, the competition is so strong, William. You what? can't possibly be so delusional as to always make winning the league your target. I think it is a tell deleterious... me. Tell me
1: what year Manchester City did not try to win the league? You can't. Come on, Martin.
0: I think that in the years in which they didn't win the league, if they had taken perhaps a moment to reconfigure certain lasting problems, then perhaps they could have added yet another trophy to the cabinet instead of pushing, that's, pushing, pushing that's and getting the, that's second. That's not the same thing.
1: Anyway, Martine's making me very upset and my thumb is hurt. <laughs> so we're going to call our <laughs> halftime break here. Let me get some ice on that. Um, yeah. You got anything else to say, Martin? Martine? We can go into the half. We'll rehabilitate your hand and we'll be back after the break. We sure will.
0: Well, so here's, here's what I'm going to do. There's plenty of things to continue discussing with regards to Komen, but I'm just going to ask you a couple of different uh, higher level. I would say big questions, if you will. Um, One thing that you and I have discussed over the course of his time at Barcelona has been this idea of the blame game. I think a lot of public perception of managers comes from the way in which they deflect uh, in in kind of when they're confronted with questions from reporters and trying to manage expectations, but simultaneously, you know, never trying to take too much heat, but taking the right amount of heat and taking the heat away from the players or pushing it onto the players. You and I had chatted a little bit about Komen's, in a way, authenticity in these moments, he's, and the fact that he's not really the type of guy to ever deflect. In a way, what do you? No, how
1: do you feel about that? He's very blunt, and uh, you know, he's uh, you know, you mentioned in the first half that he's maybe someone who would even say things other managers wouldn't, such as you know, how do you expect me to win with this team? Like, look at us. You know, he's. Uh, but he's someone who always focuses it on his own team. He's not someone to complain about what the other squad is doing. He is always someone. You know, even if it's at the cost of calling out his own players, is going to keep the problem in house and gonna say, look, you know, this is something that can be fixed. This is our fault. You know, let's let's not focus. He's not he's not the one to make like flimsy excuses at all. I've I've never heard him really do that. That ownership is a little bit admirable, don't you think? I, I feel yeah, like as, it is. especially for someone who has been just taking heat like since he stepped into the job, pretty much, you know. And and that's obviously something he's had to deal with for a long time. It's probably helped him build up this shell of you know not really, uh, you know, reacting to that stuff too much and just being you know very Dutch, I guess, and straightforward. Is that is that <laughs> racist? I hope not. <laughs> uh, I hope
0: not. I mean, I think considering the fact that he was so consistently tactically outclassed in these matchups, which is something that is a definite stain on his record. right? There were a lot of matches in which you could evidently see that the opponent, even if they were inferior in terms of the overall individual, the sum of the individual components, like there were a lot of teams that bested us in terms of their strategy. And I don't think that Coleman was ever the type of person that was going to institute any sort of style, any sort of principles uh, of play, I don't know whether he had much of a game model besides just general uh, prickliness. You know, that's kind of the, the, the aura that I get from him. I think he, in a weird sense, for a Barcelona club that is, I think, so, at least since the Pep era, so desperate and so deeply um, admiring of kind of footballing intellect, he's a bit of an anti-coach for what we've had in the past and this Ooh. goes hand in hand with you know the punching bag and with the sacrificial lamb and the atomic bomb exterminator but i think mm-hmm. the intriguing thing here is that the way in which he was just a jolt of being maybe even just a lot more of a motivational presence or it was even hard to sometimes say if he was motivational or what sort of messages he was pushing in the locker room, given that as we said, he, you know, he was very honest realistically with a lot of the outward expression of his opinions, but he has some weird connections to soul Shire in that sense.
1: Yeah. Really emphasizing the Shire more and more with every time <laughs> he's um, getting
0: more and more English. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about the idea that Ollie and Komen could be similar and the idea that, you know, tactically proficient, probably not. But in terms of some unspoken influence, some mentality coach aspect, you know, can that even survive anymore in modern football? Can you do that without people, you know, coming for your life as they have for both of these coaches?
1: Um, If you have really, really good players, maybe. I mean, look, like, we, we can talk about the role of a coach or whatever, but, like, at the end of the day, all, all these all these players in the field, like, are great, even if they're not given, like, specific tactical instructions before matches. Like, they can still go out and play well. Like, you've seen, like, United, you know, are a team that maybe don't look like they've been receiving much in the way of tactical instruction in the past couple of years. But, I mean, it's not like they're playing terribly and look like they don't know how to play. They're still finishing second, right? They finished second last year. I mean, if I'm being honest, they'll probably end up finishing in the top four again this year somehow.
0: Which, speaking of, is an interesting thing that we didn't discuss before the break about this idea that some clubs are just much more comfortable always always shooting for first, getting third, and always doing that and never actually winning. Because one of the things that comes into play these days as well is this notion of... Top four get exclusive rights to tournaments, right? Top six, top eight now with the Conference League. Soon enough, if you don't get relegated, you'll be invited to the, uh, you know, pixie dust fairy championship where you'll face off against other bottom feeders in other leagues. But there's financial aspects at play here too, right? There's things where, you know, you get to, to, you can't afford to have a season where you get 10th because you can't afford that. Yeah, there are too many sponsorship bonuses that come into play with getting certain spots, and that's detrimental.
1: It's detrimental to most teams. I think there are teams that can kind of eat that for a season. I think Chelsea are you know, probably one of those teams that were able to. But, but it hurts their prospects in the transfer market too, right? It does, you can't- yeah. But you up, don't to, have- up to a point, you know, still, you, you know, lots of things should have hurt United's transfer prospects over the past few years, and they still seem to be doing just fine. Um, but, I mean, get, getting back to your original question, I think, you know, that idea of, like, just, like, a personality coach, a, a Ted Lasso, if you will, or, you know, perhaps a lead Tasso for Komen, um, is it's something that's going to become less and less common. I think it's something that was, you know, undoubtedly more common, uh, if you start looking back 30 years, something like that, and you know now there's there's not as quite as much room for that because you know tactics are you know sorry Stan Moore but they're they're becoming a bigger part of the game you know they're they're probably going to continue to do so if the past few years are anything to go by you know the the competition is getting much better tactically on the whole you know the, these these small clubs are now able to not just like oh well we'll have uh, you know Ronnie, who played for our team at center back a few years ago, managed it. Now they're like, you know, looking online and like scouting and like bringing these interesting managers from all over the world. And like look look at the managers like in the bottom of the Premier League. Like it's 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 a drastically different landscape to what it was even ten years ago. Right? This this stuff is going to continue to improve. And you know, that's just more and more of a disadvantage that uh you know someone someone like Ole is at. And but one you know, thing that I've not got one thing
0: that I've been thinking on. With regards to that, you may a, a very interesting point about the fact that the saturation of genuine top managerial talent is just increasing, increasing, especially in the Premier League, where it's just this cultural melting pot of yeah. you know different footballing ideologies and cultures. One question that I've been mulling around um, for the last couple of days has been this idea that it seems as though a lot of the teams that are in crisis mode right now are fighting for the same coaches. And that realistically makes sense, but the list seems to be finite and thin. And I've been asking this question as to whether there's almost a shortage of top managers eligible for the highest clubs, right? This idea that, you know, for Tottenham, it had to be Conte and it had to be Conte now because if they didn't, then United was going to take him in two weeks, perhaps if Ali ever gets fired. And they need to do it now, and they go from, you know, Jose Mourinho, who is the big name, to then trying to get a bunch of different people, like Fonseca and these other guys, falling short and going with Nuno as, like, their seventh choice, very outwardly, to... It seems as though there aren't many options, because so many clubs have taken up such good you know, compelling candidates and the sea, there's just fewer fish in the sea. But my question too, on that topic, and you can comment on that certainly is like, Oh, I will. Yeah. Are worse teams generally just raising their standards for no reason. Like I asked this question about Tottenham in particular, where with all due respect, Tottenham have a lot of compelling pieces. We had an argument you and I earlier today as to whether they will get top four next year with Conte. I don't think so. You do, but yeah, why the, not? but my question is like sometimes i see these clubs you know having these discussions about coaches to sign and you know these teams are like in 8th place and they're like you know well you know we either need to get the coach that just won the ukrainian division or the austrian division but we certainly can't get anybody that's any worse than that it's almost as though like you know the saturation is coming from the other angle where like just worse clubs are falling into this desire of like trying to just explode and trying to get this just top blockbuster manager to transform their fate and their fortunes, right? Newcastle right now. Yes. Influx of cash influence from abroad. They are like what in 19th in the PL and they're talking about signing Unai Emery. Like, yes, I understand that times will change and there will be an entirely different picture, but what 19th place team do you see anywhere else with the emboldened outlook
1: that they should be gunning for a guy that won the Europa league last year? Well, what, what 19th place team do you see with the anywhere near the financial, you know, <laughs> power of Newcastle and in sure, the premier league on the whole, I mean, you, you look at, you know, the, the financial weight these clubs have the bottom clubs in the premier league compared to, you know, their counterparts in La Liga, for example, it is ridiculous. I mean, there, there is no comparison whatsoever. These clubs are operating at completely different levels of the game. And that's uh, made something a little bit scary for you non-Premier League fans. Because, I mean, the what's generally happened over the past few years is, you know, both in terms of players and probably more in terms of managers, the Premier League has just become, you know, not quite a Super League, but, I mean, pretty much a Super League, right? They're getting all the best managers in. They're trying to get all the star players that they can and, you know, maybe that will create shortages in some other places. But, I mean, only if you really lock yourself into looking for those very top managers. Because, I mean, you're right. Like, right now, you know, An- Antonio Conte was really the only good man- only, only truly top manager without a job until yesterday. And, like, now that he's gone, who's, who's the best currently unemployed manager? I mean, it's probably Nuno. Maybe. I don't know. I can't think of many other names. I mean, w-
0: one of the one of the things that I've considered, too, there's this idea of the tall poppy syndrome. Are you familiar with the tall poppy syndrome? i'm I'm about to be, I guess. So the idea is it's this cultural phenomenon, as it's written here in the definition that I've pulled up, um, where I'll read it straight off because it's well put, in which people hold back, criticize, or sabotage those who have or are believed to have achieved notable success in one or more aspects of life, particularly intellectual or cultural wealth. The idea being that there are people who are fearful of reaching the top because of the idea that society these days has a tendency to cut down the tall poppy. So the mm-hmm. the highest of them all gets all of the, you know, is the target for everything. And the target of everything eventually, as much as they can withstand the blows, as much as Koeman was comfortable handling these just horrible things that were being thrown at him, whether they were right or whether they were wrong at some point they tumble. And so what I've noticed a bit is that there are a bit of a dynamic in which some coaches will get to the top. And it's like Icarus where you, you go so fast and you had such great success and you ascend to the top and then you explode and then you have to pick up the pieces Uh and for some, right, a lot of conversation has been happening right now with Graham Potter, right? He had some somewhat humbler beginnings, had some good, yeah. impactful success at some smaller clubs. Now is at Brighton, is widely regarded, I think, within certain circles at least, as a very, very talented coach. Tactically, oh, yeah. very, very sharp, yeah, sure. has is 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 pretty young, all things considered. Yeah. And, and is English. Which, and he's English, which is even, huge. Even better. And so a lot of people you know, when I look at Tottenham, it's very, probably very difficult for them to, you know, I'm sure they tried to get somebody like Graham Potter and triple his wages, right. And get him to actually leave Brighton. But I see them going for these just big names and Antonio Conte, right. As an example. And I see, I've seen Barcelona do the same thing. I've seen Man United do the same thing, you know, Van Gaal, Mourinho. I mean, Barcelona, I don't know if you can really call Setian or, or Valverde big names. And maybe we can touch upon the, biz- the bizarre nature of those appointments. But yeah. Like, you know, you're signing Koman, a club legend, who is effectively a big name. And there's just uh, but this... not
1: not quite in the same way. But we'll we'll get more to that later.
0: Yeah. But there's this weird reluctance to either opt for the manager who is achieving success but doesn't have the same Hollywood, you know, aspect to them, or on the other hand, and this is a key distinction between United and Barcelona recently, or to pigeonhole yourself into these like quirky weird managers yeah. that nobody outside of Spain has heard of until they are appointed and trying to instill some ideology into the club. And so it's confusing because it's hard to say what's the best approach. Cause we kind of have both spectrum, both ends of the spectrum here yeah. where, you know, some people like I said, I mean, Arteta, for instance, I'm rambling now, but Arteta is a guy who seems to be somewhat piecing things together. I don't want to jump the gun. His mm-hmm. arsenal will probably go and lose three games if I say anything, right? But he seems to be sort of slowly building kind of what he wants, right? Yeah. But it could be said that his ascent to the top in spending a short amount of time with City as an assistant and then jumping to Arsenal was very much a kind of tall poppy type of moment where it's like, he was the guy that got there probably for no reason was there. And you know, Pep called him his prodigy or whatever. Uh, And, and suddenly it's like, you're so out of your depths. People are just criticizing him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And I think that people are fearful of that. And people are trying to tread lightly because guys like Pirlo went straight up to the absolute pinnacle and then didn't do well. Right. Frank Lampard jumped, you know, spent some time trying to in his
1: form <sighs> an identity and a concept, and, but he went right to realistically, right? He went right to the top. I feel like he Lamp- got chopped down. Lampard didn't really, I don't know. He did get chopped down, but I don't think it was as much his fault. I don't think Lampard really had that many failings at Chelsea. He did. I mean, if you remember, I mean, people were legitimately predicting Chelsea to finish like 10th in his first season just because they had sold like all of their players. And the season before it was like a hazard one man team they got fourth or something you know he was doing well with Them got them all the way to the semifinals in the champions league but i think lampard suffered in the end because the squad he built was just too good and the expectations got raised too high and you know went from being a project like oh okay this is like actually a win now team so we better get a win now manager in here to match mm. i think that's reasonable yeah I think that makes sense to me.
0: And he also spent time at what Derby County kind of it, trying to,
1: yeah, did, did very well with them for the most part. There's uh what Harry Wilson was in that team. Maybe uh Mason Mount was as well, actually. Was Liverpool funny. legend. Yeah, he was. Yeah. So was, um,
0: Patrick Bamford. No,
1: or am I misremembering? That's not, not, no, not them. Bamford's <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah. I digress.
0: I maybe you can look that up for me real quick. Um, maybe I, I could, uh, Yeah or maybe I'll look at it for myself. I sure. So I guess the, the, the question I'm trying to kind of get to with all of this, right. In this Uh idea that, you know, some clubs are looking for something, right. They want success. They want the fans to be happy maybe, but a lot of times what I've found in these managerial appointments, and this goes for Komen, this goes for Ollie is I don't know that anybody actually knows what they want. And I'm not trying to project some feeling of uncertainty or doubt into the ears of all of our, you know, listeners <laughs> who've managed to get this far. But I genuinely don't know. I myself, I don't know what the manager's job is anymore. And I am going to take a leap of faith and speak for many and say that it's probably hard to pin down for a lot of people.
1: Certainly for me. Um and it can really vary because you know the the general expectation. You know, if you know, there's definitely people who are sitting at home thinking, "Oh, this is stupid." And if that's you, then your thing is the manager's job is to win games. And like, yeah, uh, kind of, you know. But I mean, is it winning games at, you know, whatever cost? Not really. You know, for some, some clubs, the best manager is going to be one that's, uh, you know, developing youth a little bit, or one that's, you know, exterminating some players like Cummins did. And I think what makes this most difficult is that, you know, this this is largely dependent on, like, the owners of the club or the board or whatever. And they never tell us what's expected from the manager. You know, they only tell us through who they hire and fire. But they never release, like, you know, we're hiring Ronald Koeman, and this is why. This is what we expect him to do. You know, we're not, we might not win for the next couple years, but trust us, guys. This is what we're doing going to be processed that's all behind the scenes so to the fans front-facing every manager's job is simply to win games you know unless you start like really thinking about it like some weirdo like martin and so you know (laughs) because of this you know all these managers are often judged you know under the same criteria when they may be you know trying and even supposed to be doing vastly different things so I mean, I agree. I don't I don't think it's really something that can be easily pinned down unless it's just like make the board happy or something like that. The
0: challenge for me is that the fan base is insatiable and the fan base is demanding, as they should be. But the question is simply, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with what you said. Frankly, I think that it is the vaguest job description in the world. You hi- you hire somebody, you sign somebody, you announce it to the public. You hope people get excited, but excited for what? You know nobody knows what to even be excited about. They just talk and don't think. and and realistically, like when you look at Coleman and when I look back at his time, did he do some appalling things in the field that were entire antithetical entirely antithetical to what Barcelona is supposed to embody? Sure. Did he at the same time perform a role that others probably wouldn't have that would have continued to bother us over the course of time and could have plagued us in future years with other managers that could have maybe had more tactical acumen and more sophisticated playing style? Yes. And so the criteria, the rubric is just so poorly defined. It's impossible to understand what the expectation is because I want to bring this back to – an example of, say, somebody who has performed really well on a rubric, all things considered, has achieved domestic success, has achieved tournament success, is endeared by the entire fan base, has built a fantastic culture within the club, and that's Jurgen Klopp, who's a guy yeah. that many people, including myself, will regard as one of the best managers of the past decade, one of the iconic managers probably of all time at this point, given what he's done. Yeah. But my question to you is what is the manager's job right now? What is Klopp's job? And do you feel as though he's doing his job
1: sufficiently well? Oh, boy. Um, if I made any Liverpool fans angry earlier, I'm probably, probably going to do it again. Sorry. Um, I Maybe Klopp isn't doing his job right now completely, in my opinion. But that's... I don't know. Again, it's hard to say what exactly his job is. I mean, my... On the field, clearly, Liverpool are still absolutely incredible. Right, they're probably, I would say, the best team in the world right now. They still haven't lost a game. They they've generally looked, uh, you know, maybe a little shaky defensively. Van Dyke is definitely not not quite back to his pre-injury days yet. He's made some noticeable mistakes recently. But I mean, the team looks really really good. But the one thing that kind of concerns me about Klopp, and you know, this is you know, kind of getting into that, like what what how broad is a manager's job actually is that we're not we're not like really setting up well for the next generation. And this is something that uh, you know, kinda happened at the end of Sir Alex Ferguson's time as well. Where, you know, obviously he doesn't have quite the, you know, Klopp doesn't have quite the same longevity, but I think it's like maybe starting to approach that same kind of like beloved status among Liverpool fans. Cause I mean, he is our only truly great manager of the past, you know, 30 years or whatever. I guess Rafa was, you know, very good, but you know, didn't really win at all quite compared to this. Um, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, he was, his teams were great up until the end. They won the league, I think two of his last three seasons. And, but after that, you know, David Moyes. David Moyes comes into probably the hardest, you know, situation any new manager has come into, replacing Sir Alex Ferguson. And, you know, as great as the team (laughs) Ferguson had was, he he didn't leave uh, a a great state for Moyes. He left a team that was, you know, very old, that maybe uh, had not the best age profiles in general, was missing uh, key players in several big areas. And I'm, I'm a little worried that Klopp might do the same thing because this, this Liverpool team, you know, I know it looks great on the surface, but if you really start to dig into the depth of it a little bit and start to think about which players at the club will still be reliable first-team options in, say, three years, that list is very, very small. And, you know, outside of defense, it basically does not exist. Uh, you, have, you have players like Jordan Henderson, Thiago, you know, James Milner, Firmino, Sala, Mane. All, you know, just just about turned 30. Right? Or older than that. Milner is like 45 or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, so I guess the the question here is like, is Klopp's job? You know, because what's best for the team over the next two years, whatever Klopp is going to continue to be the manager, is to stick with this team. Is to stick with the team that has been fantastic for the past couple of years. You know, that, that has been you know, doing great and has been getting 90 points in the league and making it to the Champions League final and, you know, maybe getting derailed by injuries once in a while, but for the most part, just being fantastic for the past few years. You know, is the better thing to do for Klopp, is, you know, the thing that he's supposed to do, say, okay, I'm going to ride this out, stick with this team for two years and I'm leaving and I don't care what happens after. Or is it to maybe blow it up a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe we'll, we'll take this one last year where, you know, Liverpool's in second, a couple points behind Chelsea. We'll really push for the title this year. And after that, you know, we're going to start looking towards the future. And I don't know because, you know, when I'm sitting here thinking about it now, what I want is, you know, us to be good long-term in the future. But I mean, next season, if we actually like start selling players and start losing a lot of games, that's gonna really hurt. And there's gonna be part of me thinking, "Oh man, like I wish I wish we were still just good this year." It's hard, you know. There's a there's a lot of time between seasons in the sport. There's a whole year. It's uh, it can be tough to feel like you're wasting one, waiting around for another because it's you can't make it come any faster. It's just gotta take that time. I don't know. That didn't answer your question at all, but. <laughs>
0: Nobility to me, being able to take the magnanimous route and genuinely make decisions for the club, right? I one of the tough things about that in this
1: modern game is that the manager will never be rewarded for it.
0: No, and they might almost be
1: punished. I mean, if they try to do this to too much a degree, they may say, "Well, hold on, we're not good enough. You're fired." And then it's like, "Oh, well, I was." Actually, I actually had like a whole couple of years planned at this. We were going to bounce back and no, nope, you don't get the time onto the next guy. And what will
0: end up happening? Let's say hypothetically, if some manager does the quote unquote, right thing and making the sacrifices and the hard decisions, and the lose, lose uh, answering to the lose, lose questions, right? Yeah. What, what's going to happen if they actually do what is in theory expected of them to be a custodian of the club that ensures its longevity, someone else will get the benefit, right? What happened with Frank Lampard? People don't really consider him to be an instrumental component of, hey. the champ- of their Champions League run. Except me. Except you yeah, and man. except me. Like no. Frank Lampard played an incredibly important role in that season. Yeah. And yet, absolutely nobody... Is out there saying, "Well, thank God that he was a part of this, and he I should come on. He should come on the podium
1: with everybody here and he get a medal. I mean, even the hope. players that play like one group stage game and then get sold get a medal. And poor Frank Lampard did half the work, got him all the way to the semifinals. Nothing. It sucks. That's good. I mean, that's got to make it hard for a manager to do and uh, take that route because you know. So what are metal. our
0: expectations? That's that's the question, right? It's like we have this tendency to just keep mm. adding." more expectations far past what is already actually even remotely reasonable. And if you look at Klopp or you look at Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson achieved success in the time that he was there and then left what was basically we are now we have now
1: witnessed a decade of disaster, effectively speaking. And not not all of that is his fault. I'm not I'm not trying to say that Ferguson left Moyes in like an unsalvageable situation or especially someone like Van Hall or Mourinho who came even later. But he put them in a tough position. you know he Mois did not have a good squad to work with. and if you think I'm wrong, go back and look at that squad and see you know the ages of some of the players. it's It's past their prime for sure.
0: Fundamentally, though, what is in it for the manager? Who in this day and age, let's be honest, and we've talked about this with with club players too, a lot of these managers are not guys that were one club men who played and will only manage their club mm-hmm. their whole life. They grew up in the hometown, right? As you've said in, in previous podcasts, these are effectively mercenaries, right? These are guys that are coming from around the world that are given the chance to mm-hmm. transplant their ideas in new cultures and new environments. But- Is there an incentive for a guy like Jurgen Klopp to really try to ease the transition into the future when all that's going to do is heighten the juxtaposition of some subsequent person who will come immediately after him to his legacy? Like, he is helping something that is inevitable which is a comparison that everybody will make right liverpool for the next 10 years people will be like oh well he's not the next Klopp. get ready because it's going to happen past 2024 whenever he leaves Oh yeah. and and if he makes allows that next candidate to have any runway before they take off what benefit does that give him right like i think part of sir alex ferguson's legacy in a weird way it's up to part him. of part of pep guardiola's legacy in a weird way is the fact that everything after has been bad and it has made everybody miss the original the original icon. And so it's like for Pep in that moment, would it have been important to him? I mean, and Pep is a weird scenario because he did grow up playing with the club. He came and like this was basically his one club thing until he went off and yeah. became more of a quote unquote mercenary. But for him unless you, you know i don't even know if we can have this expectation of these managers to be so forward-thinking and so caring towards the club organization you know do you think conte is going to go into spurs and you know be like oh you know i feel this identity this identity this deeply rooted connection to the yeah, city yeah. of london and when i'm when i leave i want to leave tottenham in the best no he wants to win no, now but he i wants mean- trophies for his resume and the Tottenham people are going to enjoy it if it happens because it'll mean that they stop being a banter club in the sense that is so you know difficult for them to get past and get through and consistently makes them a not serious an unserious team for the poor players or the poor fans that do love and adore that club at at a certain point it's like doing the right thing you're you're never going to you're never going to be rewarded for it. And well, in this- I, don't,
1: I don't know if that's quite true. I think I think for your example, for someone like Conte, who's you know someone that you know, if we're seriously projecting, is not going to be like a lifelong Spurs manager. He's going to be there for two seasons, three seasons, something like that. For those managers who are there a short time, then no, there's there's no real incentive. But I mean, for for a manager. I mean, do you think, like, Klopp is unhappy to see Dortmund still doing well after he left? I really don't think so. No, I'm I think... not saying that they look backwards with,
0: like, any sort of, uh, you know what's the word? They don't have any bad wishes towards like their previous club saying like, mm. Oh, I really, really hope that Lucien Favre and that these other guys that no, are coming my, after me or Tuchel just like are so bad that I look way better. I no, mean, they're, but they're what probably, I am saying...
1: there probably is an element of that. I mean, you know, that's, that's like a human thing. I've, this is something I've had to deal with. You know, I got fired from my last coaching job and I've had to kind of, you know, spend the season looking at their results and like wondering whether it's, you know, whether I should be happy that the team's doing well or just like, you know, happy when they lose, because that shows that, like, hey, like, th- I was I was doing something here. Look at this. It's tough. I mean, and I, I can imagine when the stakes are much higher than something that weighs uh, a lot more on these guys. But, you know, I have to think that, like, in some level, and, like, obviously, this is a different situation, because this is, you know these guys i'm talking about a guy like klopp a guy like pep a guy like alex ferguson you know these are not people who are getting fired uh you know in horrible situations like i was and then has that incentive to like want to watch it burn these are guys with real connections to the club and stuff and i think the satisfaction you know even if it's just a personal thing even if it's not something that's widely recognized the satisfaction of you know being able to know that like hey i did good work transitioning over Look at this. I'm I'm gone. I've moved on to the next phase, but what I built is still doing great. That's gotta be really nice. I think, you know, even even in my situation with having maybe more incentive to want them to fail, I think still, you know. CMC, if, seed, it's very nice to think like, hey, like I I maybe contributed to that in some way. If
0: Klopp's final season with Liverpool is one in which they win the league and then the subsequent five, ten years they just like plummet into darkness. I don't think it'll impact his legacy. I think he will have gone out with a bang and it'll be tremendous. And people will look at him as being this, this cultural icon and this beautiful character that so many people bought into and were able to derive a lot of joy from. And nobody will for a moment question the fact that, well, you know, he did make some sacrifices in that season to put it all out there and go for one final run, you know? And honestly, I don't think that, it kind of comes back to the question of like, is the manager's job to win forever? Is it to win during the time that they're there to enjoy the spatial-temporal uh, blip in our in our existence where something good actually happens and to latch onto that and to enjoy it? Right. Like, think about the the Bulls. Right. The Bulls uh, had some years where they were utterly spectacular. They were the most iconic, famous. NBA team in the world. They were Uh, probably the the team team that that put that team that put the NBA on the map, realistically, internationally speaking. When you know these guys, these characters, Jordan, Pippen, went and became like just cultural icons across
1: the the earth, right? You know, Michael Jordan for Chicago Bulls is kind of like Michael Jordan for Chicago (laughs) Bulls. But those guys, right, in the aftermath of those
0: of those whatever six rings they got, was it six? You know better than I do. Uh huh. Did the team continue to achieve those things? No. But did oh, that impact Phil Jackson's legacy? No, and it shouldn't. Oh, but
1: basketball is very different. You know, there's there's a lot more player movement in basketball. You know, those very same Chicago Bulls. You know, this year, they have three players left from their roster for that from last year. There's just so much more turnover and that that kind of stuff never happens in soccer. You know, you 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 would never see a team even sign like, you know, only leave three players in their starting lineup from last season, let alone at the whole club. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I think it's, uh, I see where you're coming from. And and in general, I agree with you. I think this isn't something that will impact a manager's legacy too much. But, you know, to me, to someone who like, you know, really cares about Liverpool and wants to see him do well in the future, it will, you know, I will have a better view of Klopp if he ensures a good transition than I will if he just, you know, goes for broke and says, all right, screw the next guy.
0: So right. you would you would you're you would be happy in his final season in what is supposed to be the hurrah of what has been a historic managerial appointment that he starts he sells you know maybe- Salah and, D- and Van Dyke and then you know he plays Harvey Elliott, Curtis Jones, and Billy Cometio the entire season. What if he does that in the second to last season? Maybe that's a good compromise. But right? he's not gonna do that, is he? No. Well, maybe should. I'm saying if in, the, if in his final season he does the, the gutsy important noble thing are you going to legitimately and, and if it does make it a little bit easier for the future which is again something also that's uncertain, right? You can look at your squad and be like, we can challenge for a title, but you mm. can't know if in a year in advance your devotion to playing young players or to selling certain people to ameliorate the financial circumstances of the club are actually going to make the impact that you envisioned. Right. And, and I think that realistically, you know, if I had the opportunity, if I could say like, Oh, a coach that we have, if I could trade a championship
1: for playing a bunch of young players, it's a hard
0: decision for me to play for me. to yeah,
1: make. It's even harder in the moment because, you know, like you said, you know, in that last season, it will not be fun. Watch, But I mean, like what it comes down to for me really is I feel like, you know, Liverpool have kind of lucked out in the Klopp era. We just happened to, you know, get one of the best coaches in the world and, you know, build a team with pretty much no transfer missteps. I I cannot stress that enough. Is like Liverpool are not a team that can afford to make mistakes with transfer, you know, City and United have made just an unfathomable amount of huge mistakes. I mean you could you could list off city fullbacks that didn't work out alone. It'd be a longer list than Liverpool's failed signings. You know, it's it's great. We managed to build a perfect team back in like 2016, 2017. And we've managed and to stuck with it. And we've managed to keep it together forever. But I mean Bayern, Bayern
0: is kind of similar too in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I see yeah, what you're coming but, from. but
1: this is, this is a moment where Liverpool, you know, Liverpool were not you know, not even talked about as being like in the top four clubs in England before Klopp came. You know, Spurs had looked like they'd kind of taken that spot, you know, Arsenal were were still even better. You know, this really this Klopp era has seemed like, okay, like look, we made this jump. Now let's solidify and make sure we are actually still one of these top teams moving forward, you know, because that's that's something that's kind of scared me. Is because I've seen, I started watching Liverpool. And my my first six years watching them, with the exception of the 13-14 run with Suarez and Sturridge and Sterling and Coutinho playing out of their minds, was we were just we were a mediocre team, you know. And I am terrified that you know we just had this golden generation and that we were just going straight back to being that afterwards. And I don't know. Even if that's at the cost, it's like, would I rather would I sacrifice like a potential title in the next couple of years? for us to like consistently finish top four over the next 10 years, instead of just like going back to being a team that might get eighth sometimes probably. Yeah. If I have to make that call now, but that's a very hard call to make when, you know, the one season where you don't win the title is in the present and all that promise of the better stuff is, you know, still very vague and often the future and you don't even know if it's even going to pay off it's it's an almost impossible sacrifice to make and that's why you know no one makes it and you don't really see teams doing this no one makes but, it but Ronald Koeman and i think that at this yeah. point in time looking
0: at our squad it was evident for everybody after losing messi which is the most seismic of earth-shattering changes that can happen to this club's core Mm -hmm. in the fashion in which it did in the uh, lateness in which it did Griezmann was the epitome of late being on deadline day right I look at my I look at our squad and I go we are not challenging for anything and that is okay yeah okay so long as we make something out of this season if I have the same criteria where I get upset watching this team because we're playing all these crosses and stuff it's, it's like at a certain point do whatever on the field so long as you're doing something, right? You have to be yeah. able to prioritize your expectations. And, you know, if you're gonna go out there and say, I want a manager that is, you know, hilarious in press conferences, that is handsome, that has good fashion sense, that plays young players, but also has good strong connections with veteran influence. Yeah. If you make your list so unbelievably long, and which hire is hire me,
1: Will Algren.
0: Tend to do like <laughs> it's just the type of thing where I'm almost like at this rate, you kind of almost has to just pick like one or two things. There's very, very few managers out there. And we've talked about Klopp. Who's almost one of the most pristine, you know, in the last 10 years managers in that regard in terms of hitting all of the marks in terms of right. playing not, some young players How much negative he's, you can
1: really say about him? I mean,
0: except for this question now of like is he doing is he going to be able to achieve uh, this transfer? And Claf- even it- yeah,
1: and close someone who's really the only fault I can have with him is like he's, And I, I can't even say this without just sounding like I'm like a terrible person because it's like such a small like he's too nice to his players. He loves them too much. Like he never, he's he's, you know he maybe doesn't have that quite that cutthroat edge that uh, you know uh, Alex Ferguson would, except with Mamadou Sakho. But still, I mean, like everyone, we haven't sold very many uh, players who actually regularly played for us at any point in the past few years, which is tough. know, that makes it makes it hard to buy players if you don't sell any, especially when you're a team that does not spend any money and liverpool have i think the lowest net spend of any premier league team over the past uh, five years i believe is that right is that what we saw i believe so we saw yeah. such a graphic about yeah. that
0: the other day That's tough. but ultimately i think that i view komen as a guy who was almost better if you just didn't watch barcelona and you just didn't actually suffer through what was utterly unintelligible on the field. And you didn't have to bleed and 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 suffer the pain of the ridicule from all of your college friends just so happening to be Real Madrid fans. But fundamentally, when you turn a blind eye to those things, which is hard for people to do. Whose, hey, that's, what life, I was,
1: that's what I was doing. Um, I love whose
0: lifeline was, is this or who for whom this is something that must in a compulsory fashion provide joy week in week out it becomes difficult and so what i want to do is take a very quick short break what? just a momentary whistle and then we're going to come back and we're going to tie everything together we're going to talk a little bit about chavi who's the perhaps uh incumbent guy looking into the future and then address actually very quickly our question that we've posed for the last two episodes which is this idea as to is there a way to actually escape um this vicious cycle that we've been discussing so we'll see you on the other side
1: and we're back uh, martin's going to talk very quickly about xavi here so the guy that everybody is expecting to come in now in the aftermath of the Komen thing and
0: as Sergi Juan takes care of things for the time being is Chavi, a former club legend in a way that's more transcendent than than Ronald Komen ever was um, and in a way that I think is more highly regarded generally because he's somewhat of a disciple to Pep Guardiola who's mm-hmm. again this god figure within the Kule mindset. So I, there's a lot to talk about with Xavi. Um, he's currently managing Al Saad in the Qatari League. Al uh, Saad has done very well, all things considered, and we can have whatever biases we might uh, want to have about the Qatari League, but when you watch clips of his team uh, today, right now, after some time developing it and with players like Kazorla in the mix, um, they play really well. They have a very, very aesthetically pleasing style of, of play. Um, he has a much more evident uh, appreciation for the finer things in football than I think Ronald Koeman has ever displayed. And I think that people have asked the question as to whether Xavi is ready, whether it is time for Xavi, whether, uh, you know, the fact that this is kind of Barcelona's last card to play and that if we really mess it up this time, then there's genuinely no idea where we're going to go from here. Yeah, And I think these are all valid concerns and valid questions, but in recent weeks, I think I've been convinced and i might have to eat my words on this in the future i, but I think i've do. been convinced that this is the right time for him so yeah. the 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 reasons are plentiful i've got um some like you know some i've got plenty of opinions on this but the reason i'm saying this right in the past the main thing that was holding me back was the experience right he's in the qatari league and as much, as successful and as uh, you know delightful as his game model has come to fruition over there, um, it isn't in a spot that people will generally uh, consider valid or legitimate right. at all. And that's just a fact of the matter. That's the state of our perception of this idea of you know, the top five the the top five leagues, the dichotomization where we we throw away a lot of you know quality that exists outside of the realm in which we're comfortable with. And that's okay because it's, you know, worldview and it's how a lot of these things work. But one thing that is compelling for me is the fact that barcelona deployed their exterminator in ronald komen he went in he picked fights he took abuse from the media he did some things wrong but he did some things right he let young players play he he in a weird way brought us back to the nostalgia of la masia and playing and seeing 17 year olds 18 year olds 16 year olds, even these prodigies coming through and, and bringing some notoriety back to the fabled Academy of Barcelona. After he has done all of his tree clearing in the forest, right? I think now this, there is no better time than to bring in an, a gardener with beautiful concepts for flowers that he wants to, to plant and have bloom. And I think after three successive managers that the public has viewed so negatively, Chavi is going to be the one that has a long leash that people give the time to create something. And I think we are at a stage now where the trees have not only been chopped down, but they've also disintegrated into into the soil and it is fertile. And it is at a point where we have so many seeds that are so compelling and so promising. And there are structural problems right? We're going to have to figure out a lot of things with this team, but this is the time where if you want a visionary and you want somebody who has ideas, who has a strategy, who clearly has an obsession of something, right? I don't know what Ronald Koeman's obsessions were. I don't know what he went to bed just like thinking about at night besides needing a tall striker that was Dutch. But what I do know is that Xavi has his convictions and they aren't convictions like picking fights with players, but they are convictions about what product he wants to see on the field. And even if it's something that takes time, and even if he isn't able to achieve it immediately, I have faith in the same way that we're seeing Mikel perhaps kind of turn the corner, perhaps again, who knows? I think that Chavi, with this team and with the respect that he will walk into that locker room with all of these young kids who were, Kit, very, very, you know, who were infants when he was winning the World Cup with Spain and winning all these titles with Barcelona as the best midfielder for us ever. Him, Busquets, and Iniesta. I mean, you can pick your favorite, but I think he will...
1: Busquets. He
0: will will walk (laughs) in to that locker room with a formidable presence that requires no foot stomping. It requires no authoritarian regime. It is the... Aura that he will carry. And I think that for the players like Gavi, like Nico, like DeYoung, Frankie, that is, like Pedri, this is going to be a guy that gets them going. And if he gets them going, that might be just the thing that we need. Because Coleman did the hard part, which was making all of the sacrifices. And I think Chavi, he will have challenges, right? Like dealing with guys like Jordi Alba and Busquets and Piquet. And Sergio Roberto, all of whom he played with, but who are mm, questionable as to what their role might be moving forward. But he is the type of guy who, when he speaks, right, he is somewhat the antithesis of Ronald Koeman. And the juxtaposition will help him because even if he doesn't get the results immediately, if he shows something on the field that people like, people will immediately jump and say, well, at least, thank God, we're playing the Barca way. And – as corny and as obnoxious as that may sound, there is something to be said for stylistic convictions, for having a a culture, having a game model, having buy-in, having something that you can just see that the team is doing. And that is, to me, the thing that is most compelling about his appointment, his impending appointment, hopefully. I mean, for all we know, mm-hmm. tomorrow we, we go look and Steven Gerrard is at the helm. <laughs> but... Realistically, you know, I, I look at this guy and I see somebody who understands the fundamental concepts, who understands how the movement of players can move the opponent, and how, you know, you can position yourself in certain ways to maximize spaces and and he thinks about timing and he thinks about how do you provoke the opposition and how can you you know all these all these terms that people on you know football twitter obsess about and people outside of football twitter are are dismissive of but they're important you know this idea of being able to Decompose the game, which is this complex problem, into smaller parts and solve smaller units of this overarching challenge, right? And thinking about superiorities and inferiorities and moments in which you need to capitalize and moments where you need to recover. He's a guy that is going to obsess over those things. And that's something that when we think about the list of requirements that people keep setting for Barcelona, right? We keep saying that it needs to be trophies and titles. And every time a player goes up to a microphone, they're like, you know, yeah, we're going to fight for all the titles this year. And I never understand why they say that. But Xavi, what he's going to do, fingers crossed, is restore the elegance. And I think that that's the thing that we have been clamoring for the most. That is the thing that the fan base will be made most happy by, is to see after these years of failed attempts, just some sort of semblance of, hey, there's a little bit of our old system in there. There's this, you know, it's not tiki-taka. Maybe it's not even this idea of positional play that people meme about all the time. But there's a appreciation for holding on to the ball. There's a ingenuity. There's a patience. You know, there's this idea that we're trying to pick apart the opponent, that we're going to do things to toy with them, that we're going to press them when we lose the ball and just have principles. Because I think that right now, the thing that has made the Barcelona fan base suffers the most is we have no idea what this club stands for anymore on the field. And Ooh. that in and of itself is a very lonely feeling and a very painful feeling. And I think that I am hopeful that Xavi will allow us even at the cost of immediate results, or maybe even he, you know, maybe he stutters the beginning and can't really figure it out, but I have faith that when he goes to training, he's going to have an underlying idea, a theme about what he does and that I'm hoping. Is a thing that we can latch onto and appreciate and enjoy in the coming years in a way that perhaps we haven't been able to enjoy in a long time. Wow,
1: that was a uh, pretty nice, Martin. Very nice uh, little burst of optimism for you. Even convinced me. Like, you know, I'm I'm someone who is not very high on Shavi um, for. Reasons I'll get into in a second, but I mean, even listening to that, I mean you're you're winning me over a little bit. And I think you know what you said is very, very valid for all the reasons you listed. I mean, this could potentially be the perfect time to bring Xavi into the club. And I think, you know, they they've kind of left themselves no option at this point because of, of just the way the team is. This is not a win now team. It doesn't really make sense to bring a win now coach in. I mean, the next manager is clearly going to be a project manager, so to speak. But I think, you know, because of that this could also be like kind of a dangerous time to bring someone as untested as Chavian. because like you said, I mean, you know, you've, you've read more of his stuff and analyzes game models and whatever, more than I have. But I mean, you know, as, as much as I don't want to like just be completely dismissive of the Qatari league, as the Qatari league, it's, it's the Qatari league, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this, these have never been put to the real test. And, you know, I can see a situation in which Xavi has given much more time and much because I think he will be given, you know, like you said, he'll be given a very, very long leash, especially coming after Kim and especially with, you know, being who he is, especially with the current state of the team, he's going to be given a lot of time to try and figure this out if it comes in. And, you know, we, we don't know that he's going to figure it out. Obviously all the signs can be good, but you know, maybe, maybe this situation like Mikel Arteta, it's like Arsenal, like kind of look like they're getting better enough for him to stay but have we really seen the proof of that yet? No. No. And if no. we don't see that for another, you know, another year, another two years, then Arteta is going to go, and Arsenal are not going to be a good situation because they have banked so heavily on this idea. And I feel like the same thing could potentially end up happening to Chavi, and if so, because of the situation he's coming into, because like you said, he's going to be giving a long leash, and everyone's going to be so happy to see him back. Maybe, you know, that uh, just having that little, you know fleck of the old Barcelona system there is going to be a, you know, shiny enough thing that it can distract people from what else is going on the field. Because I think, um, you know, Xavi, it feels a lot to me like what Barcelona have been trying to do with, you know, the managers that they've hired besides Komen in the last few years. And I think you said, no, they're they're trying to be a little too quirky, but a little too cute. It feels like Barcelona is like trying, you know, with every sign they make, again, possibly with the exception of Komen. Uh, just define the next Guardiola because Guardiola was someone who, you know, just came from, you know, pretty much had had no experience before Barcelona as a coach. He had nothing big, but, you know, he's a tactical genius. And, you know, Barca looks like complete geniuses for appointing him. They're like, oh, and it looks like they're just trying to do that again. They're trying to make signs that, like, if they work out, they'll go, see, nobody thought this would work. And it did. Look at us. We're, we're so smart. And so they've they've hired people with, you know, very little international reputation. Like Martin said, I mean, guys whose names, I legitimately, like, did not know before they were hired for Barcelona. And it's a... Xavi feels like just some kind of progression of that. And, you know, like I said, there's there's no option now because of the state the team is currently in, right? Because it is a very youth-heavy team, it makes no sense to bring in, you know a results-focused kind of win-now manager. But I do wonder, you know, what position Barca would be in now if they had done that at some point over the past decade instead of just trying the same thing over and over again and just kind of entering this cycle of mediocrity that you've been talking about. And, you know, we, we've kind of hinted at, like, what it takes to escape that cycle. I'll give my answer now. What it takes is, you know, someone to make you a lot worse and to get rid of the expectations. And Kerman was that. You know, and, you know, now they're free of that expectations and, you know, hopefully they can now get back or hopefully for you, I guess, I don't really care, but hopefully for you, they can now come back and, you know, they're rid of the cycle. Maybe we'll now be better than mediocre, but being rid of the cycle also means you could potentially be worse than mediocre. You know, that that that's a very scary thing, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's like Ronald Kuman is a crucial piece to all of this. And I guess the way I'll finish this is by saying, you know, he may not be the best Barcelona manager of the past decade, but he is probably the only one I'm going to remember.
0: Diving into this final question that we have along the lines that you alluded to this notion of, okay, we've talked for two episodes now about this idea that there's a lot of clubs two in particular that are stuck in this washing machine, this infinitesimal (laughs) washing machine that never ends of just not being as good as the fan base feels as though they should be and the question now is you know we typically just talk and don't arrive at any conclusions but I think what you've done already is something that's uh, an excellent takeaway from all of this which is the idea that one of the plaguing things of all of this is the insatiability of those that consume the product because we talked. We had an entire episode about the fact that you know we were saying you know yeah Chelsea fans just haven't been content with any striker until they finally got Lukaku and he was playing so well at the time when we did the episode and like he embodies Drogba and it's reminiscent of the golden years and it gives yeah. people some sort of you know it makes them think about where they were at perhaps in their own lives when they were watching those good moments and and enjoying that time with with younger friends who were you know less let's say they had fewer problems back then and all those different things, but the challenge, which is something that you've alluded to is this idea that Barcelona has spent so much time looking for the next Pep Guardiola that it has perhaps been difficult for them to simply understand that there will never be another one of him ever. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the oh, things that's... that I want to talk about with this notion of escaping a cycle, you brought up, Uh, deleting the expectations. Unfortunately for Barcelona, I don't think it's possible to delete the expectations in this modern era. I think for a club like Leeds, who was historic and then went down and legitimately had a legitimate crisis that wasn't just people complaining about being in third place. That's, that's where you delete the expectations. But what I do think is that I, I, didn't I agree with delete.
1: you. I said you know, or shake off. Let's say it's just like lessen even. And Barca, I mean, their expectations are certainly lessened. You know, no one, no one's going to realistically expect Xavi to win the league his first season with the squad he's got right now. I don't think. I mean maybe people I don't, will, maybe. I don't know. I'm still Barcelona fans, but on the whole less people will expect it than they had expected 3 years ago. I'm pretty sure like Rivaldo
0: or somebody came out with a quote recently saying that like when Xavi gets appointed, he expects us to win the Champions League. Oof. Okay. Or something like that. So this is what I'm saying though, like your Old. point is entirely valid. If it's possible for us to perform a maneuver in which we don't have to deal with those shackles anymore, then yes, that's the ideal situation. But what I think is actually maybe even more realistic, right? If you look at a club like Liverpool, do you think the expectations they're going to be good now, after all these bandwagon fans have accumulated for the next 10 years, do you think the expectations are ever going to die off? It's going to be not. terrible. No, exactly. So here's what I think you can do as Xavi entering this environment where he's, expected to be successful. I think the most important first thing is that you need to define what are the actual criteria that will let you keep your job and what will let you carry on within this role because I think that there's a level of prioritization that I've alluded to previously. But I think that you have to take your top 5 goals with the club and you need to pick 3 and do those 3 things really well. I think that when you we we have these cycles and we have these situations where the manager is brought in, everybody expects everything to get fixed and nothing gets fixed. The benefit of Komen is that he's fixed one thing, which is that under Valverde and under Setien, we didn't have as much youth as we have right now. And it might be yeah. a generational thing. It might be serendipity. But the fact of the matter is, Komen's record shows that he plays those young guys. And so what what is important to understand is the thing that you alluded to previously is like with this vague job description, right? Right now for Chavi. If everybody's going to hold him accountable for results and get mad when he loses his first classico, which will happen, mm-hmm. yeah. then we can't do this together. If we're going to do this together, we need to understand that those expectations need to be much more precise. We need to we need to find solace in the idea that he might take a year to piece together something, and we might see, you know. The little glimpses of our team suddenly becoming actually grounded in some sort of principle, which is something that again I think Barcelona values, but it alludes to another thing, which is that the expectations from club to club vary so much in terms of what will actually provoke a firing or what will actually provoke happiness yeah. from the fans. Because for us right now, people are going to say that we want to win, but the thing that matters most to me, if I can even if I even know what matters most to me is just that we return to this more this idea that you know Real Madrid has these galacticos players between the rivalry and they have spectacular have had spectacular coaches and things like that but the thing that barcelona could could firmly think about in those years where the rivalry the el clasico dynamic was so fierce was this idea that like we played the better football than they did That was like such a thing that we were able to latch onto, right? Real Madrid was a counterattacking side. They didn't want the ball. They wanted to spring, and they were dangerous when they sprung. But we were, you know, the more refined, the more cultural option. I think that right now, after watching such brutalized versions of this team try to perform and try to compete, it's like I want to see some shade of identity. And that's the thing that matters to me. Right. And so I think that when you look at the different clubs and you look at these coaches coming in, these appointments, Conte is the most recent one, but we can talk about any host of other managers that have come into new clubs recently. You know, you look at Allegri who's struggling right now with Juventus as an example, example, you need to, understand what is legitimately going, what is the purpose of your role? What are the things that are going to achieve that? And it needs to be very goal oriented because the second that it becomes coach oriented or career oriented for the individual, you lose sight of things. When you start picking fights with Ricky Pooge, because that's the way that you are as a person, that's how you manage, or that's you know the thing that allows you to gain leverage via intimidation in the, in the dressing room, it doesn't help you. And sometimes when we think about, you know, these managers with these philosophies and they come into a club and like, you know, oh, the philosophy didn't work and Jose Marino gets fired from Spurs, right? And things like that, where it's like, well, how pragmatic were you? What does it matter if you are a coach that wants to die on a tactical hill or some other hill? Uh, you know, of that matter, like, what does it matter to any of us that you have these convictions and these principles? If the principles don't actually achieve the intention of your job, which is not to be some figurehead, some, you know, uh, pusher of a tactical movement or of some sort of other thing. It's to, you know, what's the objective. It's to make the fans happy. It's to make the board happy. We have to define that. And once you have that, the manager needs to identify the things that are going to get them there. And so for the Barcelona situation right now, Xavi, one of the challenges is that I don't know what is going to make him successful. I don't know what the public is going to regard as a good thing, a good product on the field. I don't know if people are going to look at his time at Barcelona if it ends up being you know, three years, let's say. And he develops these young players, but he doesn't achieve anything. If suddenly we're going to become the club that has no trophies in the cabinet, oh. you know, it, it is important to try to figure out for the fan base, what matters and what is going to keep you, make you happy. Cause fundamentally that's what matters most every, at the end of the day, the manager needs to understand those things and they need to push to make those things happen because every time that I, you know, this whole thing reminds me of group projects, in school where a lot of times with group projects or even just projects in general, they don't even have to be group projects, any sort of project. Historically for me, I've always had this stupid need to maybe be a little more creative or maybe creative in the sense that I probably think of it or do something a little bit different or something that I've considered to be, you know, more virtuous. You know, I challenged my, my USSF licensing professors and in a way that has come back to bite me and I think it's led me astray and harmed my performance on the actual rubric because I've tried to be somebody uh, who has this principle of like, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm, I have this assignment, but I really want to do it right by my own standards. But what does that do? What does that do? What's the actual tangible product of that? You have some sort of complex where you think that what you're doing is, you know, noble, but at the end of the day, it doesn't serve the actual goal. It doesn't genuinely get you where you want to get, where you need to get, doesn't let you hit the marks that you need to. And so I guess my parting thought here is like, why do we value coaches that do anything but bring joy at the end of the day? right? What is, what is the value of doing anything but the pragmatic thing that is going to get the fan base as close as possible to enjoying themselves in the stands? If that's winning, that's winning. If that's playing beautiful soccer, that's playing beautiful soccer. If it's playing young players, it's playing young players. If it's bringing the club back to its roots or connecting it to the culture of the city. But if you're not doing that, then what are you doing? And I think that I'm, I, you know, I'm hopeful that moving into the future with Barcelona in particular, that Xavi is the guy that is going to suit what the fans are clamoring for most, which is the not comen, which is not playing garbage football and doing something that reminds them of the beauty that we once attained. And, That's kind of my approach, I think, to hopefully escaping the cycle that
1: we have seen and I'm praying that we can get out of. So, interesting. It's a good thought to end it on. You know, I think uh, you talked a lot about the importance of fans there. And I think, you know, with that, it's important to remember that, you know, I I said earlier that managers are kind of indebted to the owners more so than they are the fans, but a club like Barcelona. Those things are not as far apart from each other as they are in some other cases. Because Barca are, you know, I know they still have a board or whatever, but they're, they're a fan-owned club, technically. Yes, still? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, you compare that to Manchester United, who are owned by, you know, distant American billionaires who don't care about soccer. Ole hasn't made the fans happy in a while. And they don't care. Right? Different metrics. But, uh, yeah, it's it's nice to see that, you know, e- e- even as much as I you know make fun of Barcelona once in a while, it is nice to see a, a team that's actually, you know, seems to be trying to make their fans happy. You know, even if I feel like the appointments they've made to do it have been perhaps a bit misguided in the past few years, they are, you know, trying to do something nice in you know, the fans. And maybe this time it'll work. But... Stakes are getting higher, because if it doesn't work, now you're in the same situation you were after the last few managers, except you don't have Messi, and you don't have Suarez, and you don't have Griezmann. And, you know, I hope for your sake that there's <laughs> these youth players really pan out, because there's there's a lot of reliance on them right now. Because, you know, you are not in the best financial situation either. So if it turns out you can't rely on these youth guys it it might be a tough few years coming forward and you know and i, main, I maintain the that in for liverpool i think but yeah when when there's all these
0: variables at play when there's such a difficult uh, equation to solve i think what you have to do is pick like i said the things that are going to get you one step further and you have to dial that in and you can't enter this job chavi can't enter this job with the intention of winning the champions league because then pff, we're done we're done we n- we are we are in the doldrums deeper than we ever have been but if chavi enters with the common ground understanding that in order to escape what we have witnessed we need to try to find something we need to find our soul and if finding the soul doesn't necessarily you know do all the things that people have expected of all the previous managers since pep, which is to compete for every title and to meet the marks on every single corner of the rubric. You know, we have to accept that and we have to get to a point where in order to actually rid ourselves of our own shackles, we need to better define what it means to be successful and be comfortable when it happens. So that is, I think where I will leave things for today. Um, we have talked about a lot of stuff. We've gone on this first double header of episodes. Um, a quick final shout
1: out to our lovely sponsors. Will, any final words? Um, you promised to compliment me on my appearance during this episode and you did not. So <laughs> you're I'm, right. You're right. I'm you're very right. sad, but you to, the, to the fans... You missed your listeners. chance. No, no, no. That, that are it. still joining for us next week, Martin.
0: Will looks very lovely tonight. This is the first thing I said when we hopped on the, uh, on the mm. video call with each other. Mm. Um, he's wearing a black hoodie. It complements his jawline uh, quite nicely. The lighting of his uh, podcast mm. recording room is, you know, really doing that bone structure justice. So I I, I just wanted to share
1: that with all of you because you don't get to enjoy it like I do. I do look really good. I've got a nice little e-boy aesthetic going on here with the headphones and the microphone. Um, (laughs) Wish you all could see, but... You just had to bring it up, didn't you? you? Just have to. (laughs) You'll just have to imagine. All right. Have fun with that. See you guys next week.
0: Enjoy dreaming about Will, fellas and uh, fellettes. Till next time. (laughs) r <laughs> r